Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 21st. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Esawin Stanley, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 138 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have another packed show for you today, but first, some of the news that we've been covering at the Electronic Intifada. The Palestinian Health Ministry has calculated that since October 7th, Israel has killed more than 29,000 Palestinians and injured nearly 70,000, with thousands more missing or buried under the rubble. And the Israeli army's systematic attacks on hospitals continue. As of Monday, the Nasser medical complex in Khan Yunus, which has been under siege by Israeli forces for two weeks, is no longer functional following Israel's raid and siege. 70 hospital staff have been arrested, 136 patients have been reportedly trapped inside, eight patients have died from lack of oxygen supply, and there is no electricity, food, or water, according to Medical Aid for Palestinians. On Tuesday, the World Health Organization reported that the agency led a complex mission with the Palestine Red Crescent Society and the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs to facilitate the transfer of dozens of patients from Nasser Hospital to other hospitals in Gaza. Prior to the mission, the WHO says it had received two consecutive denials to access the hospital causing delays in urgently needed patient referrals and leading to the death of at least five patients in the intensive care unit. ...situation. This hospital is the most important referral hospital south of Wadi Gaza. It's now on its knees. The entire neighborhood around here is damaged and destroyed. The hospital itself has no electricity, has no food, has no water. There's a, very few doctors and nurses. They're living here in the premises, working around the clock, WHO, OCHA, and the colleagues from UNICEF were trying our best to get at the most critical patients here. Working with the director of the hospital, he's identifying them, we're trying to move them out. It's a slow process. We have four ambulances from the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. We can put two, maybe three patients in the most in these ambulances. The road coming in here is very, very hard to manipulate. We're gonna be back here as long as it takes to make sure the patients that need more medical care can get to it where they need to. That was a video from the WHO. We'll have more on Nasser Hospital later on in this broadcast. Meanwhile, the situation in Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunus continues to be critical following a 30-day siege by the Israeli military, reports the United Nations. On Tuesday, the Palestine Red Crescent Society said that Israeli forces attacked Al-Amal Hospital several times, quote, resulting in significant damage to the hospital facilities in addition to injuring three of the patient's companions. On Monday, PCRS reported that, quote, the water desalination station at the facility is no longer functional after being hit by Israeli forces, and that available drinking water is only sufficient for three days. The facility already faces a lack of fuel reserves to generate electricity for high-risk patients and a near exhaustion of food supplies, and has reportedly sustained damage due to the recent artillery shelling. Children and pregnant and nursing women in Gaza are continuing to be deliberately starved by Israel. 
UNICEF, the United Nations Children Fund, reported on Monday that, quote, a steep rise in malnutrition among children and pregnant and breastfeeding women in the Gaza Strip poses grave threats to their health, according to a comprehensive new analysis released by the Global Nutrition Cluster. As the ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip enters its 20th week, food and safe water have become incredibly scarce and diseases are rife, compromising women and children's nutrition and immunity and resulting in a surge of acute malnutrition. In its report, the Global Nutrition Cluster says that more than, quote, 90% of children aged 6 to 23 months and pregnant and breastfeeding women face severe food poverty eating two or fewer food groups each day. The food they have access to is of the lowest nutritional value. UNICEF adds that almost 16% or one in six children under the age of two are acutely malnourished. Of these, UNICEF says that almost 3% suffer from severe wasting the most life-threatening form of malnutrition, which puts young children at highest risk of medical complications and death unless they receive urgent treatment. As the data were collected in January, the situation is likely to be graver today, the agency adds. The report also finds at least 90% of children under five are affected by one or more infectious disease. 70% had diarrhea in the past two weeks, a 23-fold increase uh, compared with the 2022 baseline. Dr. Mike Ryan, executive director of the uh, WHO's Health Emergencies Program, said that, quote, hunger and disease are a deadly combination. Hungry, weakened, and deeply traumatized children are more likely to get sick, and children who are sick, especially with diarrhea, cannot absorb nutrients well. It's dangerous and tragic and happening before our eyes. UNICEF's Deputy Executive Director for Humanitarian Action and Supply Operations, Ted Shaban, stated that, quote, the Gaza Strip is poised to witness an explosion in preventable child deaths, which would compound the already unbearable level of child deaths in Gaza. We've been warning for weeks that the Gaza Strip is on the brink of a nutrition crisis. If the conflict doesn't end now, children's nutrition will continue to plummet, leading to preventable deaths or health issues which will affect the children of Gaza for the rest of their lives and have potential intergenerational consequences. At the same time, the World Food Program stated on Tuesday that it is pausing deliveries of life-saving food aid to northern Gaza, quote, until conditions are in place that allow for safe distributions. The agency said that they were making this decision because crowds of hungry people have been climbing aboard their trucks and claimed that convoy on Monday, quote, faced complete chaos and violence due to the collapse of civil order. Several trucks were looted between Khan Yunus and Deir al-Balah, and a truck driver was beaten. The remaining flour was spontaneously distributed off the trucks in Gaza City amidst high tension and explosive anger, the World Food Program said. They added that, quote, a large-scale expansion of the flow of assistance to northern Gaza is urgently needed to avoid disaster. To achieve this, WFP needs significantly higher volumes of food coming into the Gaza Strip from multiple routes. Additionally, crossing points to the north of Gaza must open. 
a functioning humanitarian notification system and a stable communication network are needed. And security for our staff and partners, as well as for the people we serve, must be facilitated. Al Jazeera reported over the weekend that at least one Palestinian man was killed and many others wounded in northern Gaza after Israeli forces opened fire on desperate crowds waiting for food aid, according to the witnesses and videos. The Palestinian human rights organization Al Mazan said that the International Court of Justice's provisional measures order to Israel was clear. Ensure basic services and humanitarian aid reach Palestinians in Gaza. WFP's pause in food assistance to northern Gaza, citing safety concerns, underscores Israel's failure to comply with these legally binding measures. As Western media and its liberal elite continue to peddle Israel's unsubstantiated and unevidenced claims that Israeli women were sexually assaulted en masse on October 7th, they are curiously silent after a statement was released by UN experts on Monday who expressed alarm that Palestinian women and girls continue to be raped, assaulted, tortured, and executed by Israeli occupation forces in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Quote, Palestinian women and girls have been reportedly uh, arbitrarily executed in Gaza, often together with family members, including their children, according to information received, the UN states. Quote, we are shocked by reports of the deliberate targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinian women and children in places where they sought refuge or while fleeing. Some of them were reportedly holding white pieces of cloth when they were killed by the Israeli army or affiliated forces, the experts said. The experts expressed serious concern about the arbitrary detention of hundreds of Palestinian women and girls, including human rights defenders, journalists, and humanitarian workers in Gaza and the West Bank since October 7th. Many have reportedly been subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment, denied menstruation pads, food and medicine, and severely beaten. On at least one occasion, Palestinian women detained in Gaza were allegedly kept in a cage in the rain and cold without food. Quote, we are particularly distressed by reports that Palestinian women and girls in detention have also been subjected to multiple forms of sexual assault, such as being stripped naked and searched by male Israeli army officers. At least two female Palestinian detainees were reportedly raped, while others were reportedly threatened with rape and sexual violence, the experts said. They also noted that photos of female detainees in degrading circumstances were also reportedly taken by the Israeli army and uploaded online. The Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitoring Group said that it welcomed this new statement and said that, quote, it should be adopted as an additional document to hold Israel responsible for its violations against Palestinian civilians. This is especially important as the International Court of Justice is deliberating over South Africa's lawsuit, which accuses Israel of committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. Maureen Claire Murphy reports that on Tuesday, the United States vetoed a draft United Nations Security Council resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Thirteen states voted in favor of the Algerian initiative, while the UK abstained. It was the third time that Washington exercised its veto at the Security Council in the past four months in order to prolong Israel's military campaign in Gaza, which the International Court of Justice determined in an interim ruling to plausibly constitute a genocide. 
Maureen adds that Algeria's ambassador to the UN said following the vote that, quote, the wrong decisions today will have a cost on our region and our world tomorrow. And this cost will be violence and instability. In addition to the nearly 30,000 recorded deaths and 70,000 injuries, quote, a report by independent researchers in the U.S. and U.K. projects that even if hostilities ended now, there would be some 8,000 excess deaths in Gaza over the next six months due to traumatic injuries, malnutrition, infectious disease, and lack of access to medical care, Maureen reports. The researchers say that without a ceasefire, more than 58,000 Palestinians will die in the next six months from excess deaths. We'll have more on the UN and the International Court of Justice coming up in a few minutes. And for more, read Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, U.S. Blocks Gaza Ceasefire Demand at Security Council for Third Time on electronicintifada.net. And finally, excerpts of some of the features we've published from contributors in Gaza over the last few days. Hassan Ahmed Abu Sitta writes, quote, three months ago, my family and I were forcibly displaced from our home in Khan Yunus, southern Gaza. The Israeli attacks on our area were relentless. I had been preparing to enter law school at Al-Azhar University. My goal is to become a lawyer and defend Palestine in international courts. But my plans were on hold as we took shelter at a girls' school in Khan Yunus. I slept in a classroom with the other men. We all slept on the cold tile floor without mattresses. This was hard, especially for older people. Then in December, the Israeli army attacked the nearby Hamad city. Our building shook during the explosions. Read more from Hassan Ahmad Abu Sitta's latest feature, Waiting to Die in Rafah, on electronicintifada.net. And our contributor, Rueda Amr, reports that, quote, almost 400 schools in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed during the current war. These schools previously served approximately 460,000 children and 17,000 teachers. According to United Nations estimates, at least 55% of schools will require either major repairs or complete reconstruction. Samia Salem taught mathematics in the Tel Hawa area of Gaza City before the war. She laments how Israeli troops laid siege to the area. Schools and other civilian infrastructure were shelled. Salem fled Gaza City for Rafah in the south two months ago. With classes unable to function as normal, she had observed, obser observed how children and parents are still trying to learn in a more informal setting. Many children are reading and learning math in tents. Reading more, read more from Brueda Amr's latest feature, Right to Education Robbed from Gaza's Children on electronicintifada.net. Those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head over to electronicintifada.net for much more. This is the Electronic Intifada live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Ali Abunima. Our first guest is Craig Mokhaiber who resigned from the UN Human Rights Office in October to protest the world body's inaction in the face of the unfolding genocide in Gaza. Craig, it's so good to have you back on with us today. Thanks for being here. Very nice to be with you. Thanks, Nora. Uh, so let's begin by having you react to the US's veto at the UN Security Council uh, and these Western leaders saying that a ceasefire isn't in the best interests of Palestinians. I mean, it's it's outrageous. What can one say after three successive vetoes by the United States of ceasefires in the Security Council, after which 
thousands more have died each time and many more will die after their veto of these, this ceasefire. As I've said before, I'll say it again, this is another piece of evidence of U.S. complicity in genocide in Gaza. Uh, and this is, this is just one of many, many acts on the part of the U.S. government that have to be compiled by lawyers that ultimately will have to, to make this case. It's absolutely stunning to listen to the hypocrisy of the U.S. ambassador explaining their position in the Security Council uh, as she stands in the way of, uh, of a ceasefire to stop the horror in, uh, in Gaza. Obviously, not unexpected. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. is a participant in genocide in Gaza. There's no other way to, uh, to, to, to put together their continuous military, economic, intelligence, uh, dissemination of propaganda, support, all of the things that they're doing, including the use of the veto, uh, than to say that they are a willing and active participant in genocide in Gaza. And Craig, not only that, but uh, you have likely seen the reports that uh, as Israel threatens to and prepares to invade Rafah, where one and a half million people are seeking shelter, uh, the Biden administration announced that it's getting ready to send more bombs to Israel. Uh, is that consistent with efforts to achieve a ceasefire or protect civilians? There's further evidence of their hypocrisy, um, obviously. Uh, I think that the Biden administration has been active, I think as we discussed before, in these periodic fig leaf harvesting exercises, as I've called it, where they try to divert attention away from their active participation in the genocide by talking about the trickle of aid trucks that they helped to uh, to facilitate about their encouragement, allegedly, uh, that Israel abide by international law, which is an absurd suggestion at this point. Uh, you know, four four months in, uh, about their insistence uh, that they're doing everything to negotiate uh, a resolution of the conflict. These are these are fig leaps, and what they're doing actively, and this is a further evidence of that, is funding, supporting, defending, shielding the genocide effort in uh, in in Gaza. So it's all very consistent. And there, there are reports, Craig, uh, that have been circulating, particularly in Arab media, of preparations on the Egyptian side of the border to receive possibly tens of thousands of Palestinians. Uh, of course, Egypt claims that it would be opposed to any mass transfer of Palestinians from Gaza. And indeed, the United States claims that it's opposed to that. Um, what, what's your assessment? Does you know, we have Israeli politicians who continue to say that they want to get rid of the Palestinians in Gaza. Do you think that risk has diminished or increased in recent weeks and months? I think it's gotten, it's increased as they felt that they are moving closer and closer to their goal. They see this, uh, um, you know, congregation of humanity in the southernmost part of Gaza in and around Rafah, and they feel very, very close to their objective of the total ethnic purge um, of, of Gaza. So one can only imagine the pressure that's being brought to bear on the Egyptian regime to collaborate in the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And I think that, you know, you can look at it generously and say that those satellite images of the construction happening on the Egyptian side of the border are just emergency preparations for any eventuality. But it's hard to imagine that that kind of investment and that rapid construction that's happening there isn't happening with an expectation 
that uh, that they will be involved in the ethnic cleansing of uh, of of Gaza. So it's a terrifying moment. I think there are some diplomatic pressures being brought to bear on the Israelis by Western powers that have been embarrassed and politically compromised by Israel's absolute lack of any limitations uh, whatsoever in its genocidal uh, assault. I think that explains some of the uh, some of the delay in a full in a full uh, full scale onslaught uh, through Gaza, in spite of the absolutely horrific attacks that are already taking place. I mean, there's no there's no diminishing those, but um, but whether that will hold, I I doubt it. I don't think that the regime uh, in in Israel has any intention of pulling back yet, uh, and that they really want to finish the job. And finishing the job means either killing everybody or killing enough people and making the conditions as uh, unbearable as possible so that those survivors who do remain will force their way uh, across the border in Rafah uh, and then be not no longer you know, Israel's problem because they will be forced to live out their lives in tents in the Sinai or, or travel into the diaspora. Um, but I think that is still the intention of uh of Israel, and I think that all signs are that they're going to go through with it. That's extremely uh, sobering and depressing, and a reminder that uh, we we cannot in any way let up on on whatever pressure we as citizens of our countries can can bring to bear. And of course, the engineered starvation is a key factor in that. Uh, we see increasing reports of real starvation in Gaza. The deaths and malnutrition, particularly in young children. Uh, you know, hundreds of babies are born every day in Gaza. Their mothers are unable to produce milk for them because they themselves are malnourished. And of course, they can't find clean water or formula for them. So it, it's just utterly horrifying. But then, of course, uh, how many countries is it now? 16 or 18 countries uh, cut funding or froze funding to UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, and the last lifeline for millions of people relying on its its basic uh, humanitarian support uh, at a time when the situation is getting worse and worse. And they did so based on uh, completely unproven allegations from Israel that 12 of the 13,000 UNRWA staff in Gaza took part in the resistance operation on October 7th. How do you square the protestations of these Western countries that they want to see as much humanitarian aid getting into Gaza with that decision to freeze funding to UNRWA based on these bogus Israeli uh, accusations, which even the head of UNRWA says they've received no proof for at this point. Absolutely. You can't square it. And I think, again, you know, just that the word complicity keeps coming up again and again, cutting off the most essential aid organization in Gaza in the midst of a genocide is an act of complicity, particularly when it's done on the basis of, first, evidence that was said to have been, uh, had, had come from interrogations by Shin Bet torturers, in the first instance. And when that wasn't flying, uh, the usual line about intercepted conversations, which 
often turn out to be false on the part of the uh, of the Israelis. And the allegation itself being a dozen, although a shifting number, it's a dozen, it's 10, some are dead, some are alive, maybe it's six, maybe it's four, later maybe it's over 100. Uh, the shifting number is being presented by the Israelis in what has been decades and decades of politicized attacks on UNRWA by Israel because UNRWA stands in the way of their ethno-nationalist plan for uh, Gaza and, and the West Bank as well. Um, so uh, the fact that Western states would accept without any evidence claims that a few people may have participated in, we don't even know if they participated in unlawful activities, only that the allegations are that they left uh, Gaza when the fence was, uh, was, was torn down. But a few people, let's say in, uh, uh, that, that 12 people committed crimes on October 7th. Is that a justification for defunding an organization of 30,000 staff, a UN agency with multiple layers of oversight that is absolutely essential, particularly in a moment of, uh, of genocide? And I've said, and I'll say it again, give me a list of US government employees who have committed crimes. And on that basis, let's see, there are a heck of a lot more than a dozen of those. On that basis, let's defund the US government. It is an absolutely absurd claim. And the fact, and this is for you know, people who care at all about their, the capture of their own governments, the fact that a foreign government, which has been plausibly accused of committing genocide, essentially gave an order to a number of Western governments to cut off aid for UNRWA, and then they did so, should make people worry, worry very much about the functioning of their own governments in the West, in the US, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, and elsewhere. You, you just uh, mentioned that uh, Israel has been plausibly accused of genocide. I think you're referring to the International Court of Justice decision delivered on January 26, in which indeed the court found that South Africa plausibly accused Israel of genocide, and they ordered provisional, uh, or, or is it preventive measures? Uh, it, basically, they ordered Israel to halt all potentially genocidal acts. Uh, Israel has ignored that. Uh, South Africa went back to the court on February 12th with a letter uh, highlighting their concerns about Israel's continuing and indeed escalating violence. And the court issued a decision, this is the International Court of Justice, on February 16th, uh, uh, stating uh, the court notes that the most recent developments in the Gaza Strip, and in Rafah in particular, would exponentially increase what is, what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. And the court added, this perilous situation demands immediate and effective implement implementation of the provisional measures indicated by the court on January 26. What do you make of, uh, of, of that statement by the court? Is it unusual? What does it tell us uh, about how this case is proceeding? And I'm going to ask you about other the the hearings that are currently going on in the ICJ uh, that are a separate case, we'll get to that. But but what do you make of of the uh, subsequent developments in the South Africa genocide case? Well, I think what the court was saying here, and you know, you've you've 
you've addressed some of the language that they've used on a, you know exponential increase uh, in what's happening on the ground. Uh, you know they've they've noted that um, they've they've demanded this immediate and effective implementation of the provisional measures that they already ordered. And remember, they ordered Israel to stop all of the genocidal acts about which we are all concerned uh, that are causing these harms. So that immediate and effective implementation of the provisional measures order is not nothing uh, here. They didn't order any additional provisional measures. And I think it's because the view is that what the court has done is already comprehensive. I think we spoke before about the fact that the people who are disappointed about the lack of the use of the word ceasefire um, weren't reading the case as carefully as they should because there is no way to implement what the court has ordered without a ceasefire. They've ordered them to stop killing and harming Palestinians and destroying uh, civilian infrastructure and to allow the free flow of, of aid and, um, uh, and to stop all of the incitement and so on. You can't do any of those things without stopping the attacks. And that still stands. And what the court said in this second uh, statement was that you needed to immediately and effectively implement those. They also said, they reminded that Israel is bound to fully comply with its obligations under the Genocide Convention. So again, they're raising the specter of genocide and with the order about it, including by ensuring the safety and security of all of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. So that decision was not nothing. It didn't order anything new, but I think it didn't order anything new because it had already issued a comprehensive order on what needed to be done on the ground. And in this decision or this statement, what they said was, now you need to do that immediately because the risk is now even higher with what is uh, happening in the, the siege around Rafah uh, in particular. So uh, I think it's it was for me pretty much to be expected uh, given you know all of the detail that was contained in the original order on the provisional measures. Uh, and now, of course, we know that Israel, not only have they not implemented any of the provisional measures, so they are in breach of the order, but they've actually, you've actually seen an upsurge in violative activities by Israel since the order was issued. And they are now due for their report to the court because the, Israel is under the supervision of the world court because uh, they found it plausible that genocide is being committed and they're duty bound to report back. And then I think you'll see further action first by South Africa, who brought the case and who will comment on Israel's report, but then by the court itself and by everyone who is obliged to try to enforce the order of the court. I just want to say, uh, no, I know Nora uh, wants to, to move us to the next uh, ICJ case, but I just want to say that... Um, we haven't had you on since the January 26th ICJ decision, but in other broadcasts, you made the very important point that this was a, a very strong decision because at the time when it came out, there was all this debate, oh, they didn't use the word ceasefire. My view of that was that in an armed conflict, you call for a ceasefire, in a genocide, you call for an end to all genocidal acts, which is which goes far beyond a ceasefire because a ceasefire means shooting of guns and dropping bombs, whereas ending all genocidal acts means all of that, but it also means ending the starvation, ending the siege, ending uh, the countless other measures that Israel has imposed. So I just want to put that on the record here on the Electronic Intifada live stream that the, the fact that the ICJ didn't use the term ceasefire 
is a distraction. This was a very strong decision. Do you agree with that? Framing is yeah. important because this is not a war, it's a genocide. And, and we don't want to be distracted and start to accidentally adopt uh, the language of those who are justifying what's happening in Gaza as some kind of a war. It's not, it's, it's a genocide. And I don't think it would be an issue at all except the word ceasefire appeared in effectively uh, in the petition that the South Africans put forward. But the court is correct. This is not the framing of this is not a war between two warring parties. It is a genocide against a civilian population. Uh, and so their command that all of those actions that amount to genocide, including attacking the people, is a constructive ceasefire in the sense that they have to stop the attacks. That's what that means. But it's much more than that as well, because it goes beyond simply um, stopping the attacks and it deals with all of the issues that relate to uh, incitement and so on that were mentioned by the court. So absolutely, that's the correct framing. Craig, I do want to ask about the current ICJ, ICJ hearings that are happening um, this week in The Hague, but, uh, but I, I want to just get your comment on enforcement of the ICJ provisional orders, um, because that's something that uh, a lot of people are, you know, rightly frustrated about, where they issue these provisional measures. Israel um, flippantly and blatantly says they're not going to, you know, be dictated by by the Hague. They're thumbing their nose at South Africa. They're um, you know, they're saying explicitly that they that, that they won't change a thing. And as you mentioned, the attacks have escalated uh, over the last month. Um, what, what kind of enforcement uh, could be expected, could happen? Is it even possible? Or does Israel get to submit its report? You know, I guess next week they're due to, to submit their report. Uh, saying, yeah, we didn't do any of the things. The ICJ says, well, we tried. I mean, what what is, you know, I know that the courts are not going to be the thing that stops the genocide um, by themselves. But what does enforcement mean at this stage? Well, of course, decisions of the court are supposed to be, they are binding, first of all. So they are legally binding. They're not optional uh, in a contentious case such as this. Um, the Where they are not, uh, implemented, it falls on the Security Council in the first instance to enforce them uh, because the Security Council has actual enforcement power. Um, of course, the U.S. will veto any effort in the Security Council to enforce the decision um, of the court. And when that happens, you can expect that the decision will then go to the General Assembly under the Uniting for Peace resolution in an emergency special session. And there, one of two things can happen. Either you'll get a lukewarm resolution that everybody, almost everyone signs on to that says uh, Israel should stop what it's doing and, you know, deploring everything that's happening. But there's another possibility. You could have a resolution in the General Assembly that actually contains teeth. It could, for example, call for um, uh, the removal of Israel from certain international organizations. It could call for uh, diplomatic and consular measures, non-recognition of, uh, of passports. It could call for um, uh, economic and political uh, measures against Israel. It could call for legal measures, you know, to bring perpetrators to justice in criminal trials in third-party courts, for example. It could establish a tribunal on its own, a legal tribunal, an international criminal tribunal, 
to hold Israeli perpetrators and other perpetrators in principle uh, to, uh, to, to account. There are a whole range of things that could be contained in a general assembly resolution uh, that could give force to that and could help to bring the kind of pressure to bear both on Israel and on its, uh, allow me to say it, its co-genocidaire in Washington and London and, and elsewhere, so that this situation isn't allowed to continue. Even if the General Assembly doesn't adopt that kind of a resolution, and you can be sure the U.S. will deploy all of its carrots, all of its sticks, all of its diplomatic missions all around the world to bring pressure to bear on individual state delegations in the General Assembly, especially poor countries of the South, to prevent them from supporting anything meaningful in the General Assembly resolution. The U.S. doesn't have a veto in the GA, but it is quite ruthless in what it uh, what it does and what it says to delegations um, that want to vote in a principled way on these kinds of things. So um, it's not clear where that would go. I, I have a fair amount of confidence that you could, in spite of the U.S.'s best efforts, get a strong resolution in the General Assembly that, can, that included some of these concrete measures. I think the most important of which in a GA resolution would be something like a tribunal. By the way, they could also set up mechanisms as they did in apartheid for apartheid South Africa, anti-apartheid mechanisms and so on, that would um, uh, dedicate and rally the resources of the UN to the anti-apartheid struggle, the anti-genocide uh, struggle and so on. So there's a lot that the GA could do. But even if they don't, individual states and groups of states are obliged when there is genocide or even a threat or risk of genocide to take action individually and collectively within their power to bring that pressure to bear. And we'll talk more about that, I think, when we talk about uh, the current discussion in the in in the uh, in the ICJ, and then finally, and you hinted at this, Nora, um, the real power is in civil society. And if you see a change in tone, although not in action, on the part of a number of Western governments now, it's because of the pressure from civil society, from movements, protests, labor unions, uh, um, uh, all those sorts of things that have been, frankly, uh, you know, bringing shame on their own governments for their participation in the genocide that's happening here. And there you could see an upsurge in the anti-apartheid movement, in uh, uh, boycotts and divestment and sanctions, all of the things that could have real teeth just coming from civil society itself. So we have a lot of options uh, for enforcement where the official options fail. There are plans B, C, and D. And then the lower you get down the ladder, the more I'm seeing an upsurge in action that gives me reason for uh, for hope that this time there won't be absolute impunity as there has been in the past. Well, uh, just yeah. on that on that particular point, before we go back to the ICJ, I just want to highlight that uh, uh, since since we last had you on, I don't know if we can show this Tamara. I, I dropped the link in uh, the chat. Um, we've had. Two Japanese companies uh, uh, end deals with Elbit, Israel's largest arms maker, and one of them specifically cited the ICJ decision. And also we had uh, Wallonia, which is one of the three federal regions of Belgium and is itself a major arms exporter, uh, cancel arms export licenses to Israel, uh, again, citing the ICJ decision. So um, that that is perhaps a hopeful sign that the decision is filtering down. If governments 
are not, uh, you know, the, the top level uh, world powers are not necessarily acting. We are seeing it filter down in uh, in other ways. And that, uh, and then we have these current hearings going on now, um, which I think, Nora, you wanted to ask about. Yeah, I, and you mentioned this, Craig, that it's it's not just the genocide that's happening right now currently in Gaza, but it is 75 years of genocide, of ethnic cleansing, of occupation, of violations of human rights, of war crimes, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the entire gamut um, that Israel's state project has always been. And, and the uh, occupation uh, has been also brought to the ICJ this week by a coalition of something like 52 different countries, uh, UN member states, um, brought by Algeria. Can you talk about, um, sorry, that was the Security Council, but but at, at the ICJ, can you talk about the, the hearings that are happening this week and um, the significance of, of, uh, of those testimonies? Actually, I think 87 countries voted for the resolution in the General Assembly to bring this to the uh, to the World Court with a lot of abstentions, but a very strong majority, which I think is a, another good reason for hope. So yeah, Israel's already on trial for genocide. And I, I think we can't say that enough because of all the distortion in the media. Israel is on trial for genocide. They're already in breach, both of the, the previous World Court decision in 2004 on the illegality of the apartheid wall and as I've said, they're in breach of the provisional measures that were ordered by the court in the genocide case just, just last month. Well, now it's on trial again at the World Court, but this time, and very importantly, the occupation itself is on trial. And support for that occupation by other states is on trial. So support from third states like the US and UK and others is also on trial in the way that this, uh, um, this uh, case has been, has been framed. And, you know, if you listen, if you read the submissions and you listen to the oral interventions, by extension, it's also no exaggeration to say that the whole ideological project of Israel is also on trial to some degree. Uh, and very importantly, and this is, I, I think, where I find the most hope, the Oslo paradigm or the Oslo ruse, as I call it, is also on trial. Because that was the dominant framework for dealing with the question of Palestine for more than 30 years that sidestepped uh, and subverted international law in favor of negotiations between occupier and occupied, which, of course, just means deference to the powerful one, which is the, is the occupied. In fact, the very desperate arguments of the few states that are opposed to the case are mostly rooted in that, that point. They know that Israel cannot prevail under international law. So they insist that the law be set aside in favor of the politics of Oslo where Israel can prevail. In other words, you know, deference to the status quo, deference to the power of Israel and its Western allies like, like the US, um, that's the way they want to see it continue. You know these arguments from the US, from the UK, frankly, from Judge Sebatinde, uh, in, in the only one who voted against the, the provisional uh, measures in, in the world court. They're saying, you know, that the court should stay out of it and leave it to these powerful states and to the politics of Oslo. That's not going to happen. Uh, that, uh, that, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and Craig, I mean, just just to back up for a second, just just for our viewers. So this particular case, we've we've spoken about the South Africa genocide case. This is a separate case, and it's brought in a different manner. The UN General Assembly has the right 
to ask the court for an advisory opinion on certain matters. And that's what happened in 2004 with the uh, International Court of Justice decision you just mentioned on Israel's apartheid wall. That was an advisory opinion that said the wall is illegal. This is another case where the General Assembly asked the uh, International Court of Justice to provide an advisory opinion on the legal consequences of Israel's prolonged occupation. And as I understand it, I'm not a lawyer, but again, I'm trying to explain it for myself and for our viewers. Under international law, military occupation itself is not a crime. War of aggression may be, and the things you do when you're a military occupier may be, but the occupation itself is not a crime it is, but it is governed by international law, by the Fourth Geneva Convention and other instruments. But because of the special nature of this occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip that has now gone on for 57 years, I believe the argument here is that this occupation is inherently illegal and gives rise to a whole number of crimes, and that the legal consequences should be that third states have an obligation to act. In other words, they have to take measures that uh, deny Israel uh, any of the resources or whether it's economic, military, political, and so on, that allow this uh, occupation to continue. You've pointed out that various states, the usual suspects, the US, the Europeans are saying, well, you know, even if what Israel is doing is uh, illegal or undesirable or unhelpful or whatever euphemisms they may use, the right way to deal with it is not through enforcement of the law and sanctioning Israel, but through these endless negotiations. I'm sorry to say that another country we should add to that list is Russia, because the intervention of the Russian uh uh, representative at the court this morning was exactly that. The Russian Federation recognized that Israel is committing a whole slew of crimes, but explicitly asked the court not to impose any measures or obligations, but simply to urge a return to the so-called peace process. Uh, is, is that a fair summary of what, what's at stake here? It's a very good framing. This is an advisory opinion, which is an authoritative legal advice by the world court, which states can't ignore. States do ignore it, but they can't ignore it and, and, and be uh, claiming a law-based approach. This is the definition of the law. It's not binding on individuals, but it, it sets out what the law requires. And we'll probably have a final decision uh, in, in the summer. Um, but, uh, but that's exactly right. Now, there are a number of states, like the Russian Federation that you mentioned, that are taking basically a position that yeah the occupation has is is illegal uh, a number of acts associated with the uh, uh, occupation are unlawful as well but they still try to preserve they're trying to preserve the space for this oslo track as a, as we've been calling it um and you can imagine that you know russia uh which had a, a, an influential role in the quartet and that that whole uh formulation is trying to retain that option as well. And a number of states have taken that kind of a, uh, of a position, you know, states like uh, 
Nauru in Canada and, and others. But there are only, this is the, the, this is the largest case in terms of the number of intervening states in the history of the world court. More than 50 countries are intervening in, uh, in this case. And of all of those countries, only two of them are defending the legality of the occupation. That's the United States, surprise, surprise, and Fiji, <laughs> on the other hand. The others are, are affirming the court's right to hear this, uh, are affirming the illegality of the occupation of Israel's actions, but some of them are trying to retain some space uh, for that, that political uh, process. The question before the, the court was put there by the General Assembly in December of 2022, in fact, and it's saying under the charter, under international law, under international humanitarian law, international human rights law, Security Council resolutions, and so on, they're asking the court to say, what are the legal consequences arising from the, and this is a quote, the ongoing violation by Israel. So it's already uh, the given fact here that Israel is in violation of international law. But what are the legal consequences of those violations of the rights of the Palestinian people to self-determination, very important piece of this, from its prolonged occupation, settlement, and annexation of Palestinian territory? Uh, its measures aimed at uh, altering the demographic composition, character, and status of Jerusalem. Uh, and another big piece of this, related discriminatory legislation and measures. And we'll get into the question of apartheid on that. And then secondly, Ali, as you, as you mentioned, the other question before the court is, how do these policies and practices uh, affect the legal status of the occupation? And what are the consequences that arise from that, the legal consequences for other states, for all states uh, under, under the United Nations? And here, they're looking at violations by Israel of a number of so-called peremptory norms of international law. These are the rules that can't be broken. There are no excuses for them. There's no derogation allowed. Rules that are uh, use cogens, non-derogable for any reason, and, and in, in legal language, erga omnes, which means they impose obligations on all states. There's no way out of this one. That includes uh, the three most important ones in this case, the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force, which Israel has been doing repeatedly, obviously, the self-determination of the Palestinian people, which is a confirmed right of the, self, uh, of the Palestinian people, which is use kogens and erga omnes. In other words, there are no excuses. It's not something to be negotiated or, or, or delayed. That's a right that exists right now and has to be respected right now. And it imposes obligations on all states. And then thirdly, basically apartheid. And this piece is really interesting because once again, you had a very powerful presentation by South Africa in which the South African presenter said that what the Palestinians have been subjected to is, quote, a more severe form of apartheid than they themselves were subjected to in, in South Africa. So there's a very clear focus on the illegality of the occupation itself, uh, owing to its permanence, the acts that are used in, in keeping it in there, as well as an illegality of the many acts that Israel uses to implement and enforce the occupation, all sorts of abuses, right? Um, theft of land, settlements, gross violations of human rights, grave breaches of humanitarian law, war crimes, crimes against humanity, apartheid, genocide, all of that is there. And I think really exciting, if you listen to a lot of the testimony, the submissions, they're finally looking at the root causes as well. And many have already been raised in the court. Dispossession, settler colonialism, 
uh, Jewish supremacism, racism, racial discrimination, apartheid. These are a part of a number of the submissions that have gone into the court, both oral and, and written. And so far, I think the signs are very encouraging. You know, you have a strong majority who voted in favor of this referral to, to the court. Western nations actually split on this. Uh, you had unanimous support from, from Islamic uh, countries, Arab countries, even those that were involved in, you know, this um, Abraham Accord nonsense. Um, you had Russia and China voting in favor of the resolution. And then you only had Israel, the U.S., and 24 states, obviously the U.K., Germany, states like that, voting against the resolution. But some Western states voted for it, like France. Uh, and then a bunch of them abstained, as the, often they're cowardly want to do. Um, and then secondly, there have been hundreds of official documents submitted in evidence by the United Nations that document Israeli violations going all the way back to 1967 until today. Hundreds upon hundreds of these document uh, documents that have produced. People say, why does the UN spend all of its time documenting all of these things and nothing ever changes? This is why. Because this is now evidence. This is reliable evidence submitted in a court of law. And then thirdly, the, the written and oral submissions that have so far been received by these 50 countries that are presenting uh, arguments are mostly supportive of Palestine's position, overwhelmingly so, on Israel's policies in the West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem. And as I said, this is the largest of num uh, number of parties to ever participate in a single IGC, uh, ICG case since the ICJ was established in, in 1945. Fourth, you have the clear requirements of international law themselves, uh, which are entirely on the side of the Palestinians here, which again is why there's a push by the U.S. and others to try to get this out of a court of law and back into the political realm where they can dominate uh, the uh, developments on, on the ground. For example, under international law, Palestinians have a right to self-determination that is non-negotiable, unconditional, and immediate. Right? It doesn't have to be negotiated. Israel, the U.S., no one has a right to veto it, as they do in the political process, but as a matter of law, they do not. It's use kogens, non-derogable, ergo omnes, imposes obligations on all states. And those obligations on third states, including the U.S. and others, the court is looking at these as well. And those include the principles of non-recognition, so you cannot recognize Israel's uh, illegal activities in the occupied territories in any way. Non-assistance is another obligation. You can't assist in any way. You can't help them carry out these abuses in any way. Clearly, Western states are in breach of this. And there's a duty to cooperate to end the situation as a matter of international law. So, you know, if this were implemented, it would it would be a clear legal statement on the illegality and the illegitimacy of what Western states are doing in providing support to Israel's illegal activities. But also, it would be the end of legitimacy of any Abraham Accord kind of efforts to try to buy off the frontline states uh, in, in this situation. And then you'll be familiar with this from the, the, the genocide case as well. Another reason for uh, hope is that Israel's written submission is very weak. It's basically comprised of, you know, illegally, uh, legally irrelevant claims, some absurd claims. Uh, they provide like a short document that essentially claims the UN is biased. We've heard that before. The Palestinians are terrorists. The land belongs to them because the Bible promised it or something, blah, blah, blah. Insisting that everything should be left to negotiation between the parties. We know why they, they say that. Which they refuse to do. Negotiations which they also refuse to, to take part in. 
for over a decade, right? Yeah. And saying and saying then we don't consent to the ICJ considering this case, so you better not do it, right? Yeah. And then finally, and this is really, I think, I mean, you know, interesting to see in a, in a, in a law case, the remedies that are being raised by states that are making submissions are also a reason for hope. They're, they're, they're talking about uh, immediately and unconditionally and completely ending the occupation, dismantling the settlements, allowing the right of return, paying reparations, releasing all of the Palestinian prisoners, ending the siege of Gaza, right? So, of course, Israel is not going to pay any attention to this. Of course, the Americans, the Brits, and others will be backing them up. But as a matter of law, you will have this clear legal statement by the highest court if they adopt these, uh, what, what is being put forward for them. And this seems to me are the legal consequences of a decision of this kind, is that you have to say if these things are unlawful, they have to end immediately as a matter of law. So the importance and the power of this testimony, I think, shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, You've got one by one. Speakers are cataloging publicly and for the record this horrific, you know, 76-year catalog of abuses, crimes, atrocities, uh, and their manifest illegality under international law. Also, you know, and this is the, the human piece of this thing so far, their impact on people, on Palestinian children and women and men. There was a moment in the hearings when the Palestinian representative, Ambassador Riyad Mansour, ambassador to the UN, broke down in tears as he spoke of the, the ruthless dehumanization and persecution of Palestinian children by the Israeli regime that views them, in his words, as a demographic threat, not as, not as children. And, you know, at that moment, he wasn't an ambassador. He wasn't the PA. He was a Palestinian man who was born in the first year of the Nakba in 1947, who lived his entire life watching his people suffocated under the boot of settler colonialism and apartheid and persecution and, you know, ethnic cleansing after ethnic cleansing. And you could just feel that he was making one last almost desperate appeal to the world for simple recognition that the Palestinian people are human beings with, uh, with, with human rights. And that test, the testimony of the Palestinians who opened the case and of the South Africans who immediately followed, together it's almost a perfect primer of the legal and moral cause of, of Palestine. I think it should be required viewing for anyone who cares uh, uh, about justice. I just, I'll just finish with this. I'm sorry on this thing. That's the essential legal point. The Palestinians are human beings with human rights. And that as human beings, they don't have to negotiate for their rights. They don't have to beg the US or the UK or the Israelis or the Norwegians or the Security Council for those rights. As a matter of international law, those rights are not conditional. They're human rights. They're inalienable. They're not aspirational at the end of some Oslo process. They're the bottom line. And that's what this case is really about. It's about saying, sorry, you had three decades to play your political games. This is a question of law. And, and as a matter of law, the Palestinian people have, have human rights. That's, I think, what the case is really about in the first instance. Incredible. Um, Craig Mulkyber, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today. We always really appreciate your incredible analysis and insight. Um, and what should, you know, just, just a final question, like, um, what is the most important thing that people watching uh, this live stream or listening can do you know like the 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 ICJ is happening the Security Council happened you know I, but what can what can uh, regular folks do right now what is the most important thing you think 
I think this is the time to make a righteous noise for, for everybody, wherever you are. If you're in a university and they're trying to silence you, get louder. I realize there's a lot of personal risk that comes with that, but they cannot silence us unless we agree to be silenced. If you're not involved in the anti-apartheid movement, get involved. If you're not participating in BDS, participate. Find out about these things. Bring pressure to bear. If you're living in a Western country that is complicit in the horrors that are happening in, in Palestine, we have a special obligation to bring pressure to bear, to educate our compatriots who are suffering under this brownout of information from corporate media companies that are themselves complicit in genocide and apartheid. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there, is a, there is a rumble that is growing, you know, uh, these days that's coming from below. It's coming from ordinary people. It's coming from just, you know, Jews and Christians and Muslims and agnostics and labor unions and, um, uh, uh, and social movements and students. And it's coming from the ground that has now become impossible to ignore. And that has to become loud enough to actually get just more than rhetoric from the Joe Bidens of the world and, and others. Um, we have to demand accountability for the perpetrators including those who are complicit. We have to demand redress for the victims and, and the survivors. Uh, and that's that's only going to come from, from us. So just get involved, educate people, speak out. Uh, and, you know, don't be complicit through silence and inaction either. This is one of those moments. This is our Holocaust moment. Uh, and it's our duty, all of us, to, to make a righteous noise. Indeed. Craig McIver, thank you so much. We'll have you back on very soon. Thanks for all you do. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you. Thank And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, thank you so much to Craig and to all of our listeners and viewers. We're now joined by Dr. Tha'er Ahmad, a Palestinian-American emergency room doctor who recently spent three weeks volunteering at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. Based in Chicago, Dr. Tha'er traveled to Gaza as part of a team sent by MedGlobal, a charity that provides emergency response and health programs to build resilience among vulnerable communities around the world. Tha'er, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Tha'er, thank you so much, and thank you for your work. Of course, of course. It's good to see you again, Ali. I don't know if you remember, but um, I saw you last time in 2009 or 10 in Amman. You were heading to Gaza at that time. Wow, you have wow. an incredible memory. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I That's hope great. we'll get to see each other again in person, but we're so, so grateful for you to make time for us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. So I know you've been uh, communicating with your colleagues at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. Uh, as we mentioned at the very top of the show, the two-week siege on Nasser Hospital has culminated in the complete uh, collapse of the medical complex. Um, we uh, had video of WHO and the, the Palestine Red Crescent Society team members, these heroes, uh, trying to relocate um, and transfer patients to other hospitals. Um, and uh, electricity, food, water is has been cut. What can you say about uh, your time at Nasser and, um, and, and the significance of, of this just absolute uh, besieging of, of the Nasser complex right now? So Nasser, when I had showed up, 
in the beginning of January was the last remaining multi-specialty hospital in Gaza. It was also one of two referral hospitals that was functioning. And <clears throat> by the time we showed up, it's a hospital that usually has 300 or 350 patients. But during this time was serving over 1,000 patients. There were 10,000 people sheltering in and around the hospital. And you felt it the second you walked through the emergency department. I mean, there's people sheltering in the hallway, um, families that are huddled up together on a small mattress. Um, they, you know, it was a very, very overwhelming situation prior to any sort of siege. Um, there were people that we were treating on the floor. We were dealing with trauma activation where there are multiple people coming at the same time because a house had been bombed a couple of blocks away. Um, uh, the doctors there were overworked. Um, they're working 24-hour shifts, 24-hour uh, shifts on, 24 hours off. Um, and then they too were probably sheltering somewhere around the hospital. And some of them were staying in a tent right outside with their family. And it really was a very tenuous circumstance prior to the Israeli military kind of getting near the hospital. They were conducting operations um, 10 blocks away from the hospital. And we every time we would hear a bomb or we'd hear something take off, the building would shake. One night, uh, the emergency department window had uh, been shattered because of shrapnel flying through. Bullets would hit the wall of the hospital. And so it kept getting closer and closer. By the time I left, the military had approached very close to the hospital, right outside of the complex. In fact, one of the ICU nurses had shown me like the tank. He said, oh, if you look out the window right by the cemetery over there, you'll see the tank rolling over the cemetery. And um, I remember kind of talking to my uh, talking to the staff because it was a really stressful night. I mean, we thought we did not think that we would. We, we, there was a chance that we felt that we may not make it out of Nasset at that time. And I remember talking to the ICU doctor. Um, this local Palestinian from Khan Yunus, uh, he told me, um, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, you probably should work on getting out of here. And I said, I don't think the hospital is going to, I don't think anything is going to happen to the hospital. That's what I told him. And he said, why do you think Nasir Hospital is any different than Shifa, than Lauda, than Al-Aqsa, than Kamal Adwan? And he listed, and Rantisi, he listed off all of the hospitals that had been surrounded, been raided, and had been rendered inoperable. He, he all of them were convinced Nasser was going to be surrounded and raided. Many people would get arrested, or I should say, abducted, and many people. And, and essentially, the the this hospital would no longer be able to be called the hospital. And it's exactly what happened. And their timeline was pretty accurate too. They told me, you know, it's going to take place over the course of a few weeks. Here, this is the first thing that will happen. There will be a quadcopter. Uh, people will be told to evacuate, and then uh, things will get very intense. And then it will all culminate with raid uh, with ground troops raiding the hospital. And you know, I think uh, it's just, it's such a tragedy because, you know, this was, the healthcare system has already collapsed. It's not functioning. It was not functioning in January. What, you know, by by making Nasir uh, uh, similar, have a similar fate to Shifa and all of these other hospitals, what we've done is we've just contributed to the excess mortality that's going to exist in the Gaza Strip. That means people will unnecessarily die. People who didn't need to die will die. And we're already talking about numbers well north of 35,000. So to me, that's really kind of, it's just this really heartbreaking and depressing moment. But I'm glad you used the word hero because that's exactly what these healthcare workers are. I mean, I talked to Dr. Khalid, he's uh, the last remaining general surgeon there. And he was talking about moving you know, 35 bed bomb patients to a safer part of the hospital. He was still there, not asking to be evacuated, not asking for safe passage. He was asking for the lights to be turned back on. He was asking to be able to do his job. And I mean, that's 
you know, I, that's his story is not going to be told anywhere, right? No one's going to know about Dr. Khalid, but I, I mean, it's just to me that's this. It's like 360 degrees of just heartbreak and, and tragedy. Yeah, and uh, last week, uh, Dr. Khalid uh, and I were messaging, um, and he was sending us voice notes and and you know little updates when he could get a shred of um, internet. And then there was uh, a report. Uh, I don't know. It was like over the weekend that um, people thought he had been abducted because 70 medical staff, including, uh, I think, eight or nine doctors were abducted by Israeli forces over the weekend. Uh, no one had heard from Khaled, but apparently he he reappeared um, on on the, the doctor group chats, I heard, and yes. he's he's OK. So he has not been abducted. Yeah. But what about the fate of the other doctors and medical staff um, and patients and patients' families yeah. who have been taken by Israeli forces. Do you know anything about their whereabouts or how they're being treated? Know nothing about where they've been taken, what's happened to them. I know Dr. Nahid, the director of uh, surgery is among them. I know um, that um, talking to uh, physicians who had been in those similar circumstances, so there is one that comes to mind who is working at Al-Aqsa in Deir al-Balah right now. He told me what happens is essentially you're taken captive, you are stripped naked, you are left to sleep outside for several days, you're tortured, you're investigated, um, you are uh, you're, you're um, moved from location to location, and then ultimately after between two or four weeks, you're just uh, thrown at Karam Abu Salem or Karam Shalom Crossing. You're just sort of thrown out and you're expected to kind of make your way back home. And um, I think... You know, the other thing is uh, Mohammed Abu Salmiya's family, the director of Shifa Hospital, recently talked about what happened to him. And, um, you know, they talked about his arms were broken. He was a leash was placed around his neck. He was made to walk on all fours in front of other inmates or, or prisoners or uh, abductees. And he was, um, you know, asked to eat off of a plate off of the floor. I mean, it's. You know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not any sort of analyst. Uh, I'm not an expert in, in foreign policy. I'm not a military expert. But um, one thing that kept coming up amongst the physicians there is they were not scared of being killed. They were not scared of dying while on duty, but they were very nervous about being humiliated like that. They did not want to go through that sort of uh, you know attack on their dignity. I mean, it's such a important. It was such an important thing for them. I mean, so many people there were looking up to the physicians. Um, to stay calm, to stay at the hospital. I mean, there was this tremendous burden and pressure on them that, you know, to not panic, even though, you know, the sky is falling, essentially. And um, their only concern really was, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be stripped naked and left out in the cold and huddled amongst a hundred people. Like, they just wanted to preserve their dignity, which is a really small ask, if you ask me. But, um, you know, I, that's, I think that's kind of what we hear in terms of the, that's kind of what happens to some of these people. I do want to mention that, you know, right before the raid took place at Nasser Hospital, the electricity was cut and instantly you had ICU patients die, two for sure that were on the respirator machines. They essentially suffocated to death. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's what's happening to some of these, the most vulnerable people you can think about, an ICU patient who can't breathe for themselves. That's, that was what their fate was. And so uh, it's, it's just tough. I, I really hope that, um, you know, once this once this is all done, I hope there's like a ceasefire soon. But I just hope that we can truly dig into what's happened at some of these places and how these healthcare uh, institutions and infrastructure have been uh, targeted. And and we we've seen the Israelis have published some of the photos or, or photos have 
come out of healthcare workers um, being humiliated and made to kneel and stripped and so that so that the Israelis can try to present an image of victory by falsely claiming that these medical workers and patients or just people sheltering at the hospital are Hamas fighters because Israel hasn't been able to to really capture any Hamas fighters. Um, but Dr. Thayer, you you were at Nasser Hospital for three weeks uh, in an extraordinary and horrifying situation. Um, you must have seen a lot of patients. You must have seen a great deal of, of terrible suffering. I just want to ask you, are there any particular uh, stories of patients or families that, that, that stayed with you? Uh, I, I'm sure it's hard to, to, to single one out, but maybe you could just share one or two that, yeah. that really stuck with you. No, thank you for asking that. I do want to mention uh, this just because you know, I hope that we can put a face to the to that human suffering that we're talking about. Um, I remember on a particular night that there was a bomb that had went off and we knew that we would probably get uh, a decent amount of patients coming in after that. And so a family um, had come in. There was around 17 people who had been injured in the bomb and five of them were what we call dead on arrival. Um, three of them were young girls between the ages of 10 and 14 years old. And I remember um, who I thought one of them was there was the father. And, you know, we're kind of checking, we're seeing um, that she had essentially been killed in this in this airstrike and him begging me to keep working. He's and he's telling me in Arabic, you know, please keep going, please keep going. It's only been five minutes since the bomb happened. Like he knew that, you know, time was important in terms of coming to the hospital. He said we rushed over and. You know, I looked up at him and uh, I had said, you know, in Arabic, I had just said, you know, Allah inna lillah wa inna raji'un, just kind of this, uh, that, that phrase that we typically say when somebody has passed on, you know, is, to, you know, uh, may God have mercy on her soul and to God we belong and to God will return. And uh, he, he paused for a moment, you know, uh, and he started obviously crying. And then he said something that really kind of painted the picture for me. He said she followed her father. She followed her father and her father had been killed last week. And so, you know, it's just uh, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And so um, he gathered her uh, in a blanket that they brought from the house. He wrapped her up in that blanket and he took her over to the cemetery to bury her. And then he went to look for a place to stay because their house had been bombed. So he needed to now find a place in the courtyard or somewhere in Khan Yunus that he can find some material to build a tent for the family that survived. And I thought, this family got no, no breaks here. I mean, not for a single second could they grieve the people they've lost because they continue to lose people in subsequent days. And they lost their home and so much has been gone. And now they're just put in this position. And they didn't even get a chance to have a memorial or have people come and visit them and uh, comfort them and have that support system. And, you know, you talk to anybody in Gaza, everybody has lost something. It's so profound how the entire population was not spared in this war. Uh, everybody has either lost a home or a family member. Everybody's kids are not able to go to school. Um, you know, there's there's another thing I do. Uh, there's another person I do want to mention. It's um, and, and that's really just to show you why how the healthcare system has collapsed. But there was a guy who had come in who had been hit with shrapnel in his belly. You always worry with shrapnel. Is it going to pierce through the organs? Is it going to really kind of rip up your body from the inside? And the assumption was with this 21-year-old, 
that um, it was all superficial and he had, you know, he, he was lucky. And so he was cleaned up and they sent him home. I saw him two days later and he looked really, really sick. And what we found out is that the initial assessment was wrong. This guy, the shrapnel had just gone all through his body and he was bleeding everywhere. He needed to go to the operating room right away. And he was circling. Uh, he was circling in a really, really uh, desperate way. And as we're sitting there waiting and the operating room is full, we're trying to temporize. We're trying to give him some blood products. We're trying to help him stay alive enough to make it to the operating room. And ultimately, he dies in front of us as we're waiting. We're just looking at him, take his last breaths. And I remember the devastation on his wife's face because she thought, that he was lucky. She thought that he had made it. And uh, in fact, it was their worst nightmare realized. And, you know, it, it's really hard because in Gaza, you know, it's a family, it's obviously a family oriented society. And so uh, it's not like in the US, if you come to the hospital, you stay in the waiting room, they wait to bring you up when they're ready. Everybody's right there. They're around you. The entire family is in the resuscitation bay of the emergency department. Um, everybody's watching you as you're doing CPR, as you're doing chest compressions on someone's chest, as you're performing these procedures on them. And I think um, something that's going to stick with me forever is, is having them watch the family member take their last breaths or realize that they had died or they had been killed in this process and just watching them try to figure out what their next moments were. Nobody there to help them, everybody having to deal with the people they've lost um, on their own. And, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's something that's not captured in talking about 36,000 people yeah. or dead. You know, you just don't hear, you don't hear those, these stories, you don't hear their names. Um, that's how I want to, that's part of what I'm back now that's something I want to make sure that I do for the rest of my life is just be able to mention their names. Do Dr. Thayer, you are an emergency medicine doctor. You work in the Chicago area, big city. Yep. You've, see you've seen a lot already before you went to Gaza. But I just want to ask you, when you got there, were you prepared for what you saw? How does it compare to, to anything you've seen yeah. in your career? No comparison. I mean, I trained in Detroit and I work in Chicago. I work at the one of the largest trauma centers in the country, one of the busiest trauma centers in the country. Um, day one, I was overwhelmed in Nasser. Day one, walking in, I was not prepared to be doing these very invasive procedures on people on the floor um, and having uh, no real um, uh, like a system in place where somebody can be registered or having a way to look up what sort of medical problems they had before they showed up or how old they were or if they had an allergy to something. I mean, it was working blindly for so much of what we were doing there. I remember at Aqsa Hospital, I spent two days, uh, three days at Aqsa Hospital in Dir al-Balah and their CT scan machine uh, was so damaged and old and the software was so outdated that we could not perform the CT scans that we wanted to perform. We could only perform this very limited scan. Well, that resulted in people getting sicker and sicker in the hospital because we were, didn't know what was going on. I mean, I had a father who was 50 years old, who was on the back of a donkey cart trying to uh, go to the bakery, who was hit by a drone. And I remember him sitting there over four days, his belly getting more distended, his mental status getting more confused, him spiking fevers, him uh, sort of 
essentially dying in front of us and us not having a clue of what was going on because we didn't have what we needed. But on top of that, we also uh, couldn't even do anything if we wanted to. We didn't have the resources that we needed to do what we needed to save this person's life. And I remember showing up the last day that I was there and seeing his family praying the funeral prayer in the courtyard on his body, knowing that this was, this is, this is kind of a, a, this is a post-apocalyptic sort of era that we're in, in, in Gaza. I was just shocked that medicine and healthcare had been reduced to this and it was reduced. It was man-made, you know, I mean, this is not something that was because of a natural disaster, like a tsunami or an earthquake. I've been to the, I've been to Turkey and Syria after the earthquake in Feb in March, and I saw the limitations. This was purely, uh, you know, some sort of military campaign and, um, the side effect of these hospitals being affected the way that they've been affected and targeted and attacked it's resulted in a in in something that i don't think i'll that i was prepared for but it's affected me coming back i mean just coming back to chicago and having all of these resources at my fingertips um it's a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt and again i think about people like dr khaled who are begging literally begging to be able to do their job and get into the operating room and turn the lights on and so it's um it's really tough it's really tough dr thayer um just a, a few minutes left but i i wanted to just ask you um about your thoughts on i mean it, it's it's clear that the hospitals and the healthcare system is the target uh of the israeli army and the israeli state um can you like what goes through your head um, as a doctor, as someone who spent time at Nasser, um, when, you know, just contemplating uh, Israel systematically destroying the healthcare uh, network in Gaza, uh, these hospitals that were already on the brink before the genocidal attacks happened in October? Um, what does it say about uh you know, again, like the heroism of these physicians and medical staff and the janitors and the, you know, electricians and, and the pharmacists. Um, but but also, what does it what does it say about uh, the enemy that that we're up against? You know, I, I for me, it's more about uh, the, the lack of empathy and the failure of the international community. And that's where I'm, most of my anger is directed towards, to be honest with you. And I'll give you, I'll tell you why. Um, I remember when Ukraine's hospital systems were affected by bombs or uh, were attacked. And I remember exactly what uh, American medical associations came out. I remember how strong their language was, the AMA, the American College of Emergency Physicians. I mean, all of these professional societies stood up and said hospitals and healthcare workers should never be a target and should never be affected. And so um, there's been total silence on Gaza for four months. Every single iteration of a hospital being shut down and people be dying and people forced to flee and being raided, nothing has come up, come of this. Nobody has said anything. And that hypocrisy is so uh, frustrating. I'm embarrassed to be a part of this profession here in the United States because it seems like the rest of the world understands that the hospital is, uh, should at the very minimum be protected. And that people, patients should be able to get care without being worried, without worrying about a bomb falling on top of their heads. And um, I think what I've been, what I found is that all of these humanitarian principles, um, they stop right when you pass Rafah from Egypt into Gaza. Um, it doesn't apply to the Palestinian people. It's a part of this 
uh, continued effort to dehumanize the Palestinians. And I'll be honest with you, to, just to just to be clear um, and to be fair and honest, uh, when talking to different Palestinian healthcare workers, they had two different opinions. One, they thought the healthcare system was it was purposely uh, supposed to be rendered dysfunctional so nobody could exist and live in the Gaza Strip and get care, right? But there was another opinion that it was just going from the north of Gaza to the south of Gaza and anything that was in between or anything that was in the way this is this is what would happen to it and of course i don't know i mean i don't know what the answer is i but i, I what i'll say is that we failed in stepping up for nurses and doctors and techs and people who work in the hospital we failed in a very disgusting way it's absolutely horrifying but to say now that I'm surprised, I'm not. I mean, when you talk about defunding Anurwa, when you talk about the healthcare system collapsing, when you talk about the lack of water being able to enter, I mean, when you talk about 100 trucks a day only coming into the Gaza Strip, it all makes sense. It all fits, right? And so um, it's just a total failure of the international NGO community, of the humanitarian community, of all of these governments. It's a failure of what's happened in Gaza. And I just hope... Um, you know, I hope that we're all held accountable for this, um, you know, and I hope that there's a ceasefire uh, soon. Dr. Thetter, I, I, as you were speaking, I was remembering the words of our dear friend, uh, Rafat Al-Ar'ir, who was murdered on December 6th by the same Israeli forces you saw uh, committing all those atrocities. And uh, in one of his early uh appearances on our live stream near the beginning of this genocide i told uh Rifat, I, I said that i was sorry that we failed uh we failed the people in gaza and Rifat said to me he said we didn't fail and you didn't fail and his words come to mind now and i just want to say to you dr ahmed uh and to, to all the medical staff uh, at Nasser Hospital and across Gaza, you didn't fail. You have upheld the highest morals of not just your profession as doctors committed to caring for everyone, but as human beings. And uh, thank you for that. You haven't failed. Collectively, we have a lot of work to do, but you are an example uh, and an inspiration for all of us to continue to stay true to uh, the mission of ending this genocide and standing up for our people in Gaza and across Palestine. Thank you, Ali. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Tha'er Ahmed. Uh, you are based in Chicago, um, and uh, you just came back from three weeks working at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. We'd love to have you back on again. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Tha'er. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tha'er. Uh, again, that was... Um, really uh yeah getting getting a little choked up as well ali um we want to uh in about uh 15 minutes or so we'll go to john for his resistance roundup um but first we're gonna uh, hear from asa uh who um uh, has just written about uh, an, an apparent attempt by the british government-backed broadcaster 
to smear prominent Palestinians in the UK. Um, Asa, give us a sense of what of the significance of this story and um, and and what you'll be presenting. Thank you, Laura. <clears throat> Why is the BBC relying on Israeli spies and soldiers for its reporting on Palestine? That was the question foremost on my mind on Monday evening as I watched the latest episode of Panorama, the British government's broad British government broadcaster's supposedly flagship investigative news programme. Panorama has run since 1953 and airs at prime time slots on the top free-to-air domestic British TV channel BBC One. The episode was ominously titled Hamas's Secret Financial Empire. It claimed to have obtained, uh, quote, access to some of Hamas's most closely guarded financial secrets. And the BBC trailed that it was going to expose its global network in opposition to Israel and its existence. But in the end, this program was a total flop. There was almost nothing new in it, and it relied heavily and quite openly on Israeli military and intelligence sources. You saw the footage there of uh, the reporter John Ware being embedded with the Israeli army. The so-called global empire that the BBC's reporter John Ware claimed to have exposed in the end amounted to dubious allegations about a single company in Turkey based on a document which Ware explained, quote, that Israeli intelligence say are from inside Hamas. In other words, Israeli spies gave them this spreadsheet. The program also interviewed a man called Micha Krobi, the former head of interrogations for the Shin Bet, as well as Mossad spy uh, Udi Levy. Ware didn't name the Shin Bet, and Krobi was described on screen only as a former, quote, security agency official. But both the, the Shin Bet, the, both the Shin Bet and Mossad are notorious for their torture and murder of Palestinians, both armed and unarmed alike. And these men, of course, pushed Israeli propaganda narratives about the evils of Hamas and the supposed need to stop humanitarian aid to Gaza. That John Ware would be pushing the agenda of spy agency shouldn't come as a surprise. Back in 1987, Ware reported for another Panorama documentary, which attempted to discredit Colin Wallace, a former British Army intelligence officer turned whistleblower. Wallace exposed British and loyalist wrongdoing in the north of Ireland, including a dirty tricks campaign against the British Labour government, which at the time wanted to negotiate with the IRA. British intelligence actually framed Colin Wallace for murder and he was later exonerated and released, but not before being smeared by the establishment and by John Ware as a fantasist. More recently, as I explained in an article which I wrote earlier this month, John Ware is the same reporter who was be behind the discredited Panorama episode titled Is Labour Anti-Semitic, which played a part in the 2019 electoral defeat of Jeremy Corbyn the Palestine Solidarity Activist, who was leader of the main British opposition party at the time. Now, in that episode, Ware claimed to expose Corbyn's Labour for its supposedly 
endemic anti-Semitism, interviewing people who were supposedly brave Jewish members of the party who had allegedly been the victim of victims of racism. But it turned out that eight out of the 10 anonymous Jewish speakers in the episode claiming to have been the victim of uh, anti-Semitism in the party were actually current or recent senior figures in the Jewish labor movement, a pro-Israel lobby group, which was extremely close to the Israeli embassy. In fact, the very first speaker in the film, that woman we saw there, was Ella Rose, who had been both the former full-time JLM director and prior to that, an officer in the Israeli embassy itself. Not only did Ware and the BBC neglect to mention any of these facts, it didn't even name Ella Rose or reveal that she was a leading member of a partisan anti-Corbyn group, the JLM. Neither did they reveal the same information about any of the other JLM interviewees. One of them, her name is Izzy Lenger, she is now a councillor, a Labour councillor in uh, North London, had even once trained in military co a military combat camp with the Israeli army itself. You can see this old photo of her here with a rifle uniform and flag. I revealed this for the Electronic Intifada back in 2021. A previous episode of Panorama, fronted by Ware in 2006 as well, also relied on uh, uh, heavily on Israeli spy sources. That episode was called Faith, Hate and Charity, and its main target was a charity, a group called Interpal, which is a British charity focused on aid to Palestinians. And that episode drew heavily on interviews with Reuven Paz, a former senior Shin Bet officer. Again, the main target of the documentary was Hamas, the Palestinian resistance group. But as well as the dubious Israeli narratives it was spinning, Ware's latest anti-Palestinian episode of Panorama on Monday was also conspicuous by the things that it didn't mention. A planned UK angle in the episode appears to have been dropped shortly before publication after the electronic intifada exposed Ware's plans. In my article on the 9th of February, I revealed how Ware and Panorama had initially intended the episode to focus its attacks on Palestinians and Muslims in Britain, alleging the support of several prominent activists for Hamas and for what it called terror. I learned of at least four such Palestinian and Muslim public figures who had been approached for comment by Panorama producer Leo Tering in late January. I've since learned of two others, making a total of at least six Palestinian or Muslim campaigners that Panorama approached for comment, but ultimately did not include in the programme. Here is one of the letters that the producer Leo Telling sent out. Two of the recipients came forward and spoke on the record to me. The prominent British Iraqi campaigner and broadcaster Anas Altakriti and Azam Tamimi, a British-Palestinian academic and broadcaster who has written two books about Hamas. Addressing both men in very similar terms, Leo Telling, the producer, asserted that the programme, quote, may include evidence of the support you have voiced for Hamas, which, as you know, is designated as a terror group by the UK government, end of quote. As uh, evidence of such so-called support for terror, the producer cited four posts to X, formerly Twitter, by Altakriti, 
where he called into question some of Israel's most high-profile atrocity propaganda about the Palestinian military assaults that began on the 7th of October. These Israeli narratives, such as the now completely debunked fabrication about 40 beheaded babies, have been widely discredited and called into question across the world, not least on this live stream. Addressing to Mimi instead of Twitter posts, producer telling cited public talks to Mimi had made, which had been posted to YouTube. In those talks, Tamimi emphasized that Hamas are, quote, a Muslim movement. They train their members on Islamic values before they train them on resistance tactics. And they are told that in warfare in Islam, you don't ever harm non-combatants. Tamimi accused Israel of lying propaganda. He said that, quote, the Israeli story about the 7th of October that was marketed to the Westerners was mostly lies. They claim that Hamas went in, killed civilians and beheaded babies and its nonsense. Crucially, the letters requesting comment from the BBC indicated that the programme was going to attempt to revive the debunked Israeli narrative about Palestinian fighters supposedly carrying out a campaign of mass rape against Israelis. With an implied criticism against these British Muslim figures for pointing out that this narrative is a lie to boot. But as we've repeatedly shown on this live stream, there remains zero credible evidence that even one rape by Palestinians took place on the 7th of October. And there is still no named victim of such an incident. High profile Israeli and corporate media claims about an alleged campaign of mass rape have repeatedly fallen apart on, upon closer examination. A much hyped New York Times article by Jeffrey Gettleman from December titled Screams Without Words, has been repudiated by the family of Gal Abdush, the Israeli woman at the center of the story. Her family took to Israeli media soon after the Times' story was published to say that actually there was no evidence to show that Abdush was raped before she died and that the Times had misled them as to the true nature of the story they intended to write before they participated. Gettleman's article has sparked growing dissent even within the Times newsroom. An episode of the paper's high-profile podcast, The Daily, based on his reporting, was scrapped before broadcast amid a furious internal debate about the strength of the paper's original reporting on the subject, The Intercept, revealed. The graphic Israeli claim that producer... Leo Telling put to Tamimi and Altakriti about alleged mutilation of an Israeli woman's breast very closely resembled a fiction-like account put forward in the discredited Times piece. In our emails to the BBC, John Ware and Panorama's Leo Telling requesting comment for our story, we put all this to them, including the fact that the claims about mass rape and mutilation of women, which they were apparently taking from the Times story, had been discredited. They declined to comment on their then forthcoming program, but it's notable that in the end, they dropped these claims almost entirely. In the final program, Ware did claim to have seen, quote, graphic evidence of sexual violence and attempted beheadings by Hamas while showing two almost totally blurred out videos, one provided by the Israeli army. This seems intended to give the impression that the video underneath the blurring, showed evidence of sexual assault by Palestinian fighters. 
Yet no such video exists and where didn't admit that. Panorama also dropped the claim about the mutilation of the women, which the discredited time story that the BBC's letters requesting comment had alluded to. Neither Tamimi nor Takriti formally responded to Telling's letters, citing Ware's history of what they described as discredited journalism, but they did post to X, sounded the alarm about the programme. This assertive and proactive strategy seems to have paid off. They were not mentioned in the programme at all, and neither were the other four Palestinians and Muslims who were approached for comment by Panorama for the programme. It's possible that the whole thing was a red herring and a distraction or perhaps a fishing expedition. It's also not impossible that Ware has decided to save, it, save his dubious research on the British activists for another project. But for now, at least, it does appear that fighting back can work. Perhaps that's the lesson that Corbyn's Labour Party never took on board. Thank you so much for that, Asa. Um, and we'll have that cut into a separate segment. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you're also gonna blog about it, Asa, so. Um, yeah. yeah. Can yeah. I can I just say, I mean, that, yeah. that's brilliant, brilliant, Asa. And as someone who's also followed this story of Israeli atrocity propaganda and the lies about mass rape, I, th I, I think we can take credit, you know, I, it's just my opinion, but I think your story at the Electronic Intifada and your inquiries to the BBC actually forced them to drop a lot of what they were planning to put in that uh, in that program. It put them on alert that uh, we're watching closely and that it's not so easy to get away with these lies anymore. So. I, I think it would have been a very different episode of Panorama that would have been been seen in millions of households across the UK and around the world had you and the Electronic Intifada not preemptively reported on this and challenged them about their lies. So I, I just think that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's hard to imagine that it would have been the same program i think uh, you're right and um it, uh, it it you know it's it's always you know as reporters it's always hard to know i mean you always you want your reporting to have an impact um it's always it's kind of hard to know sometimes whether something has made an impact or not so look it's, uh, it's good to see. yeah but you know they are used to getting away with the lies you know and we yeah. talked about this a few weeks ago when the washington post came after us and did that big smear piece it's because, you know, the reason that the Washington Post wouldn't have bothered paying attention to us if we weren't having an impact. I mean, yeah. it would be nice if John Ware were to send an email and say, uh, oh, I, I, I had to change my whole program because of the electronic intifada's <laughs> reporting. But he's not going to do that. So yeah. we have to put two and two together. And yeah. I, I really do think that, that uh, your reporting... Uh, had an impact and that w we are having an impact and it shows that that there is value and importance to all of us not just mm. the electronic intifada as a publication or other independent outlets but individuals challenging this thing and letting the media mouthpieces of power know that we're not taken in by their lies anymore and they can't get away with it like they used to yeah absolutely and i think as well i mean it, 
it, credit to um, Azam Tamimi and Anasal Takriti because, you know, it was them who approached me and uh, and said, you know, look, this is, I wouldn't have been able to learn the story if they hadn't decided, if they just sort of quietly decided, oh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to ignore John Ware by themselves or, you know, just responded in a, in a certain way, like in, maybe in a, perhaps in a meek way. Um, I couldn't have wouldn't have been able to have done the story. You know, it it was it, it was up to them to actually be more assertive and say, you know, we're not going to accept this, and therefore I can do the story. Um, you know, that that kind of uh, assertive responses, I think, is is what is needed, really. Indeed, and uh, we're so grateful <laughs> every time uh, you you take these. Uh, these institutions to task, Asa. Thank you. We try. Um, and you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada's live stream. We are now going to go to our contributing editor, John Elmer, for the latest in the resistance uh, tactics against uh, the Israeli army. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Great show. Terrible. Terrible news, but great show. It was great to see Craig and, and Dr. Ta'er. That's um, incredible testimony. I hope we can get him back to talk more about that because, yeah. um, you know, it seems weird like that the media doesn't think like, hey, why don't we interview these doctors that have the personal experience with the people that are coming in uh, to these hospitals and what condition people are in and what conditions people are living under unless it's the most obscene uh, dismantling um, like we've watched over the last three weeks of Nasser Hospital. But this, uh, you know, like Dr. Tahir said, this is happening all to every hospital. It's happened to every school at all levels um, of education. Um, we've just watched them one by one, just dismantling in front of the entire world, um, these civilian institutions that are going to be impacted for years to come by this. Um, it's just devastating. And uh, you guys did a great job of covering that. So um, yeah, let's uh, turn to the resistance. Um, still going strong, um, despite um, an avalanche of lies about Israeli progress. There's really no indication of any of that. Um, the Israelis moved into moved back into uh, southern Gaza City uh, in the last few days, um, and that's when we saw their casualties uh, tick back up um, because the fighters are still there in the north. Um, the Qassam Brigade still exist as a fighting force, and as we're going to talk about today on the show, um, all the other groups that are involved um, in in the fight as well. Um, so maybe we'll just start off with uh, number one here, Tamara. This is a tunnel operation that the Kassam Brigades uh, showed us last week. Um, and we've been bringing you these, the whole conflict, but it's just incredible to see them being used. Um, fighters coming up from a tunnel and attacking Israeli forces um, behind their positions. And Abu Obeda spoke the other day uh, about this. You know, he said that you can't defeat fighters who will wait in their positions for months in their defensive positions before attacking. Um, you know, he, he said that uh, that that kind of commitment um, from from the fighters is what we're seeing because this is footage from Khan Yunus. Um, so this is fighters that have been waiting in Khan Yunus uh, in their battalions um, for the Israelis to come. Um, and, and that uh, attack, that tunnel operation, 
um, shows you two casualties. And again, another uh, Palestinian resistance video that shows Israeli soldiers, unlike Israeli uh, videos that just show snuff films um, bombing from the sky or capturing doctors um, and, and torturing them um, and humiliating them and then putting them on, on their television, on their national television channels. Um, so we just, again, the juxtaposition between the two uh, couldn't be more stark. And in this video, um, they, they had uh, a fighter in this video. He's sitting in his room in Khan Yunus waiting for the battle. Um, and, and he addresses it. He says, the enemy says that it kills civilians because we fighters are present among civilians. No, we actually, as fighters, are in areas completely devoid of civilians, the battlefield with which the enemy specified its location and from which they commanded people to evacuate. Um, so just gives you, again, from the fighters that we haven't been able to hear from um, throughout this battle, Kassam gave us that um, in a video this week. People, he says, the fighter says, people did evacuate. Um, and we saw that from the, um, you know, where we talked about how the Israelis break up the entire Gaza Strip into this grid map and tell people to leave. Um, so they're telegraphing where the fight is and the fighters are going there to confront them. Um, but still, he says that, uh, and we fighters came for the enemy in the place that they evacuated. But this cowardly and criminal enemy goes and kills our children in their homes, kills our family in their safe houses, kills them with F-16s and attacks them while they're safely in their homes. We fighters are here in the battlefield. Let us show you how to deal with fighters on the battlefield. Um, asking for this, uh, you know, asking for this battle to involve uh, the Palestinian fighters and the Israeli fighters, not the hospitals, not the schools, uh, all levels of schools, all levels of hospitals and healthcare clinics, uh, fight a battle against the fighters that you're saying um, that you're in Gaza to battle and to destroy and dismantle, um, which we know uh, isn't, isn't happening. Um, so maybe we go to number two here tomorrow. This is the, this is Kassam. We've seen this before. Um, oh, this is them. This is them setting up a um, a remotely detonated device, um, and we're seeing them here use a, a backup camera from a car, um, which we've seen them use before, um, taking them off the car, reappropriating them, and here we're watching them place it uh, in the entrance to a building, um, and we're watching. I'll, I'll give you the dialogue the next time it runs through, but we're watching these fighters watching from a third location. Um, communicating with fighters on the ground as the Israelis come to this building, deciding whether they're going to go for him. And the fighter says, death is coming to you, God willing. Um, they identify the soldiers. Um, and then the phone rings. We've taken the audio out of this, but the phone rings. And he says, let the one behind get closer so they can entertain each other in hell. The one in the back went to the tank four times, the guy says, and this guy can't even come into the room. And the fighter says, we've been waiting 100 days for this, which again is what Abu Ubaidah, who is the spokesperson for the Qassam Brigades, uh, effectively the spokesperson for the Palestinian National Army, um, addressed um, that fighters have been waiting um, for this ambush, which the Arabic text says there um, killed um, three Israeli soldiers, uh, commander of the battalion, um, acting company commander of the battalion, and another um, uh, commander from the battalion. And again, so 
there's a there's not backup cameras at every uh, ambush set up by the Palestinians. So what we're seeing is just a snippet of, of the operations that go on. Um, and so this is a remotely detonated Shawath device that we've talked about and we showed uh, being hand delivered uh, at previous times. This is it remotely detonated um, from a separate location. Um, so an, another successful uh, operation that in, and when the fighter says he's gone back to his tank four times and this guy can't even get into the room. Um, it shows you that the Israelis are afraid to go in these buildings. They're not doing anything like fighting inside the buildings or inside the tunnels. Um, they're not even on the street coming into these buildings. Um, they're taking time to get in there. Um, so there's nothing that's happening, which we've been saying for four months. Um, there's nothing happening like going into the tunnels um, and fighting because this is this is this is outside. Um, so these ambushes are set up in the tunnels as well. Um, and when they lose soldiers like this, they're not interested in continuing to do that. Um, and so they shift their focus to Nasser Hospital, where they snipe people, uh, innocent people, uh, at the entrance of the hospital, because they're not willing to do what we're watching on camera here um, uh, happen. Um, they're not willing to pay that cost. That's why they send uh, quadcopters with guns on them um, instead of simply like, I'm not going to give the Israelis uh, orders on how to operate, um, but there's no reason that you have to shell from from a distance uh, Nasser Hospital or cut off the power and food to the hospital. If your if your uh, supposition is that there's somehow some objective there, um, you don't have to kill people with standoff fire or suffocate people on ventilation machines. Uh, it's just, it's so depraved what we're watching. And when you juxtapose it with the the resistance, um, I think it's just really stark. Maybe we can go to number three tomorrow. Um, this is the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Abu Ali Mustafa Brigades. And this is our first uh, video that we've seen of uh, the PFLP in combat in this way. We usually see this group uh, firing rockets and mortars. Um, these are the smaller guerrilla groups that operate uh, within the Gaza Strip. And if we kind of understand the Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of Hamas, to be the national army, um, which it is, and the way it's organized is as a national army. Um, after the national army, there's a number of guerrilla groups um, that operate. Saraya al-Quds, um, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, um, and I'll go through and, and, and show you some other groups. But this is a, a PFLP operation uh, in Khan Yunus, uh, firing an RPG at a tank. And um, these other groups, these smaller groups, they don't have the information operations networks set up like the Qassam Brigades do. Um, but the, the PFLP, um, the Abu Ali Mustafa Brigades, have talked about carrying out 100 of these operations throughout the Gaza Strip. Um, and just to give you a sense, the Qassam Brigades have acknowledged more than a thousand, something like twelve or uh, thirteen hundred of these kind of operations. So it's a it's a matter of scale. Um, but for Israel to um, to claim victory uh, in the Gaza Strip, um, we would stop seeing these videos of these groups like the PFLP. Uh, operating and we're not. We're seeing them operating in all areas. And like I said, they Israelis reinvaded Gaza City the other day, um, and and now we're getting videos today um, from Gaza City fighting. So we're seeing these groups able to communicate um, on the battlefield 
instantly. This isn't a video from weeks and weeks ago. Um, and we'll see in coming up videos that um, that the fighters themselves indicate that these uh, videos are um, they're new, they're recent, they're they're uh, responding to the conditions. Um, they're not saving these up and and publishing them once a month. Um, these are actual battlefield reports that we're trying to bring to you. And every video that we we're going to see again, just to say, every video that we're going to see today has happened uh, only since the last time you saw us uh, one week ago. So we're still covering these videos um, as the battle unfolds. Um, so just to keep that in mind um, as we're watching these. Um, and again, this is a unified uh, command, a unified front from these resistance groups. And we've seen these groups all make statements throughout the war um, and particularly lately related to the ceasefire that are all consistent. They all speak in different uh, language, but they all say the same thing. These fighters, uh, whether they're Islamists or leftists, whether they're the national army or the guerrilla armies, um, are operating in uh, a unified front with us with the same position. One group isn't calling for uh, a ceasefire under conditions that are different than the Qassam Brigades. Um, are asking for or that Hamas is asking for on the national level. Um, and so this kind of resistance, um, we haven't shown it for the for the main reason, um, because the National Army, effectively, the Qassam Brigades has shown us so much video and um, there's so much week to week to break down that we haven't done these. So I wanted to bring this week uh, some of these other groups that people have mentioned that they uh, wanted to hear from. So that's the PFLP uh, and an RPG attack. So maybe we can go to the next one, Tamara's uh, Sarail Quds. This is Islamic Jihad's armed wing. Um, and they're, again, uh, reconnaissance, constant reconnaissance. It's, they're not disappeared in the north. Um, this is Gaza City. Um, the Israelis believe that they're the ones watching, but they're actually being watched. Um, and then you see an RPG attack uh, on that Israeli position uh, by Sarail Quds. Um, and here we see Sorrel Kuds launching um, a kamikaze drone, a drone that effectively is itself uh, a missile um, and uh, carries a warhead and flies like a drone, but then attacks like a missile. Um, and we're seeing here mortar uh, attacks. And the same the thing is that just to say to the listeners uh, who aren't following this um, as closely, um, these videos that we're seeing of these mortar attacks, these videos are constant. They're happening. We get them every single day of all the groups firing uh, these mortar rounds. And again, the reason why I haven't brought these videos uh, of mortars um, is because we don't have time every week because of the, the quantity of other videos to show that. But the groups are operating um, carrying out these um, mortar attacks all the time. And this is this suicide drone, kamikaze drone that we're seeing. Um, this is a change in battlefield conditions too, because this is now standoff fire, as it's called, firing from a distance um, uh, at Israeli positions that have moved back. Whereas in previous weeks and months, we were watching positions um, attacking the Israelis from up close because the Israelis were in built up areas. Um, for for a large measure, the Israelis have left the built-up areas, um, have and they've also shaped the landscape. We've watched them with bulldozers, uh, bulldozing everywhere, and essentially the Israelis are reshaping this battlefield as well and creating um, massive dirt berms around their troops so that they are essentially protecting their tanks in the buffer zone. 
Um, and because the Israelis have had now four months on the ground to shape um, the landscape, literally, um, there was an, a, an Israeli TV report yesterday that showed the highway that they're building from Nahal Oz to cut the Gaza Strip in half. And they showed just openly on Israeli television how they liquidated, dismantled, and destroyed um, the hospital that was beside uh, this road that they're using to cut off um, the Gaza Strip. Um, so these are conditions that are changing uh, on the battlefield by the Israelis um, and the Palestinian resistance in Gaza. This is in the north. This is in Gaza City um, is, is able to respond um, uh, to those changing conditions. And it shifts the way that the battlefield is looked at. So just because the videos are different or just because we lose contact with a group for a couple of days, um, that's not indicating that the situation has completely changed. Um, it's a situation that has gradually evolved um, and the resistance re re um, responds to that. Um, yeah, we can go to the next one tomorrow. Um, so this is the this is the uh, Kassam Brigades operating again in, in Khan Yunus. Um, and we, we've seen these videos constantly. Kassam um, wasn't communicating these field reports um, for a couple of days, and Abu Obeda came out and said that uh, battlefield conditions sometimes uh, dictate um, laying low, um, and and so people, you know, shouldn't shouldn't think that some kind of difference in communication is indicating somehow that the resistance has been um, uh, impacted in ways that would prevent it from fighting uh, in in these areas. So this is a we're watching. Um, Yassin attacks uh, by Qassam Brigade's fighters uh, against uh, armored vehicles. And some people, because we don't see the aftermath of these um, uh, attacks, uh, maybe after this runs through, we can go to the next one tomorrow. Um, the, um, the effectiveness of this weapon, which I showed last show, uh, the Israelis evacuating um, somebody that was a tank commander um, that was inside a tank um, that was hit. So we know that they're being killed inside their tanks by these vehicles. We know that they're impacting um, their bulldozers like we see um, this footage right here that we're watching for the listening audience. We're watching a, a fighter shoot down an alley from, I don't know what that is, 30 feet away from the bulldozer. Um, so not only are they not dismantled, but they're right beside. And so this is a video that um, Al Jazeera showed the other day of the Kassam Brigade's um, research and development of the Yassin uh, warhead, which the Palestinians have created a clone um, of an existing warhead, uh, Soviet warhead. They've created a clone of that weapon in the Gaza Strip using um, what they have in Gaza, which is largely unexploded ordnance. Um, and then their engineers um, have created um, through years of testing, four years, according to the Kassam Brigades, of just this kind of testing um, to get the exact, um, you know, uh, chemical um, clone to get the efficacy. So what you're looking there is uh, Al Jazeera indicating that that 600 millimeters, 60 centimeters, two feet of uh, penetration through concrete um, in Israeli armor is a secret how thick uh, Israeli armor is, but it's not 650 millimeters thick in all places. Um, and so when Palestinians are targeting um, 
you know that, that just wanted to bring this for people who who wonder what we what what we what happens on the other side uh, of these Yassine launches that the fighters themselves are very quickly exiting and you can see actually I showed a couple of weeks ago of uh, of the fighters uh, peeling away after they fire their RPGs and you can see the fighters in this video just uh, just testing the weapon um, that they're peeling away even in this R and D. Uh, setting. They're they're actually performing um, in their military capacity. You can watch this guy does it here, even though he's even though he's watching. Uh, he's what he they're testing here how many layers of this concrete it can go through, and still the fighters um, are peeling off. So I just wanted to show people um, that for the efficacy of it. Um, maybe we can go to number six here tomorrow. And this is also Sarail Kuds, the armed. Uh, wing of Islamic Jihad. This is a long video that I edited shorter, but you can see them uh, tracking tanks. And you can see that on the top of that tank there, it's what's called a cope cage. And we saw those, um, the Israelis added that to their tanks um, uh, before the invasion of Gaza. And they were flat metal cages to protect against the suicide drones um, that we la watched launched or the RPGs um, fired from um, from elevated areas and they came uh, into Gaza with those cope cages and now they've changed those cope cages from being flat across the top to being uh, uh, a canopy um, because of the efficacy of the Palestinian resistance firing down from elevated shooting positions which I've pointed out all through this war is a significant uh, advantage um, for attacking the army um, and attacking the these tanks, if you can attack them from above, um, they're they're not as strong. And so what we're watching here is um, Soraya Al Quds monitoring an Israeli supply convoy, watching all of their listening devices. We're watching them, and those are the berms that I talked about. The Israelis have created that berm, um, and, and then their fighters are behind it, and their armored vehicles are behind it. And so what we're watching here is Soraya Al Quds monitoring that supply convoy for multiple days, um, figuring out the position exactly to where they are, and then calibrating their mortar fire um, so that it's not just firing um, you know, randomly at the border with the mortars, hoping to hit Israeli positions on the other side of the border. Um, they're able to monitor uh, the movements, calibrate where they are, where that means that their, their base is, um, and then get their mortars on target, like this video clearly shows. Um, this is Sorrel Kuds showing in this video um, the medevac flight by the Israeli Air Force to get their injured fighters, their injured soldiers, out of these areas. So there's the cope cage again. You can see how it's a canopy now rather than flat across the top. And that that is a, is a response to the efficacy of the Palestinian resistance firing um, from above. So again, we're seeing battlefield conditions change. This is operations in the buffer zone. This is Israel not wanting to be in the built up areas right now in this interim period between uh, the invasions of Khan Yunus and, and Rafah, which the Israelis say is pending. Um, but if you give the resistance time, as Sarail Quds has had here, um, they're going to recalibrate their resistance into the buffer zone. 
they're going to attack these positions inside the buffer zone. And it takes, again, these are all videos from this last week. Um, if we were doing uh, collections of videos from the whole month, um, you know, we might show these trends in a series of videos uh, all at once, but we're we're breaking these down week by week, covering uh, covering this conflict. So this video shows that um, the resistance is able to monitor all of these positions that Israel believes that they're monitoring from, um, and then successfully attack them. And um, even when we weren't getting as many field reports from the Kassam brigades uh, for the last week. Um, the Israelis were still uh, leaking out their casualties uh, one by one, as they have been doing throughout this whole war. They try not to group their casualties together to show that three and four and five soldiers are being killed uh, at once. Um, and we don't know the the outcome of this, but it's clear from this medevac flight that you'll watch uh, come in here. And then after that, we can flip to the next one tomorrow. Um, that the um, that the positions that the mortar fire that we watch and we only see the cameraman showing uh, the mortar. There's the medevac helicopter uh, being flown out. Um, so that's Sarail Kuds, um, and this this next one um, is the Popular Resistance Committees, the Nasser Saladin brigades, and they're showing you here that they're operating in the north and their rocket launchers. Uh, capacity has been removed. The Kassam Brigades as the National Army, they have their rocket launchers buried um, and connected by tunnels. And that's one of the things that has frustrated the Israelis is that they believe they know where these rockets are being fired from, and then they approach and they, they don't see it because it's buried uh, in the ground. So the Popular Resistance Committees here is showing us that they've lost their launchers, um, but they're firing those uh, those missiles, those those rockets, um, without launchers, and putting a sign there that says that the Nasser Saladin brigades are still operating in the northern uh, Gaza Strip. So Israel hasn't even knocked out the smaller guerrilla groups in these areas, um, let alone um, dismantling the national army effectively that the Qassam brigades um, are. So, and again, um, the popular resistance committees, same as all the other groups. They believe no deal without the end of the aggression. So they're not saying temporary ceasefires. Um, they're sticking to the position of the Palestinian national movement in the proposal that was submitted to, um, to the negotiators by Hamas, um, um, which is communicating the Qassam Brigade's message from uh, the Gaza Strip. And we see the Popular Resistance Committees um, participating in that. So that's uh, another one of the uh, groups in the Gaza Strip operating. So you could see there without their launchers, um, but still carrying on to fight, which is something that the Qassam Brigades, if they were to be dismantled as a national army, um, could revert to a guerrilla group that would operate um, with similar effectiveness. So um, these are just lies uh, of the Israelis to say that they're dismantling these and, and you know, as Ali said, trying to get a spectacle of victory um, out of uh, essentially an attack um, on, on a ghettoized population that has nowhere to go. Um, so maybe go to the next one tomorrow. This is uh, another two groups. This is the uh, Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Uh, a leftist group, the National Resistance Brigades. They're called the Martyr Omar Qasim Brigades. Um, and they're operating with the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, which is um, a, a Fatah-adjacent um, resistance group. Um, and they're carrying out a joint operation. And on that sign that you see there, well, the fighters uh, linking up 
the rockets to fire without rocket launchers. That sign um, saluted an attack that happened from a Palestinian uh, from East Jerusalem who carried out an attack um, in southern Israel the other day. And they're acknowledging that attack uh, within 36 hours of that attack. So these groups are not only communicating with the outside world, um, they're able to operate themselves and leave these uh, messages for us. So this is the DFLP, Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and the Al-Aqsa uh, Martyrs Brigade. So maybe we can go to the next one after this launch here tomorrow. Um, so um, it's one of the half a dozen um, other groups that are operating uh, in, in, uh, in Gaza. And one more group that's operating, this what we're watching here is uh, a man portable air defense system. Now, this is the, um, I think they're kind of colloquially known as stingers, um, but that's uh, an SA-7. That's an Israeli drone. Um, these were weapons that we've talked about before on the program. These were brought in from Libya uh, after the collapse of the Gaddafi government. Um, these weapons, um, 1970s uh, and 80s anti-aircraft weaponry that are able to be shoulder fired the same way as the Yassin, um, but fire a heat-seeking missile um, that can hit planes. Um, so the collapse of the Gaddafi government let uh, a bunch of these weapon systems that are, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollar weapon systems, uh, proliferated uh, throughout the Middle East, and many went to Gaza. But the problem with them was that the batteries um, were dated, and that the whole system relied on these uh, thermal batteries to work. Um, and so, essentially, I think I described them previously without the batteries as effectively a stick. Um, that you could maybe hit somebody with, but um, but that otherwise useless weapon. So the Palestinians got these weapons from Libya as effectively useless weapons. And then their Qassam engineering units set about uh, building a battery pack for them. And you can see if there's shot right there, that uh, uh, rim-shaped um uh, what's the word, whatever that is, horseshoe underneath the, the scope there. That's an Israeli Hermes drone. That's their main drone that you hear buzzing over every single video. There's a good shot of it. You can see that at the front, um, that uh, semicircle is the retrofitted batteries that the Qassam Brigade's engineers have developed in Gaza to make these weapons that we don't know how many they have, but at the time, um, the reporting at the time when Gaddafi was collapsing was about how there was thousands of these uh, weapons um, that had been uh, looted from uh, Gaddafi's uh, stores. So we're seeing this um, for, we saw Qassam fighters bring this weapon on um, October 7th, and we've seen them fired a couple times in between then, but this is the Mujahideen Brigades um, the fighter that you're seeing there is a fighter from the Mujahideen Brigades who's using the Qassam weapon. Um, and so they call that a joint operation. Um, and so this is the Mujahideen Brigades also operating uh, in the Gaza Strip. And you can see from this video that the groups are operating together. They're sharing their weaponry. Um, and the Mujahideen Brigades are also um, have been fighting on all fronts uh, of this battle, as all these groups have that I've mentioned, uh, more than half a dozen of these groups operating. You can see there on that shot, the retrofitted battery. Um, so that was a question that we had going into this war. Um, if we were doing this show six months ago, 
uh, I would have talked about whether they had retrofitted these batteries and if it meant that the Palestinians had uh, anti-aircraft defenses. Um, and so I guess we're seeing in this uh, image that the, the the answer to that is yes, they do have these. Um, and um, we this is, again, something that we see when the Israelis are not in the urban areas. Um, this kind of fire, and you can see it towards a helicopter there, they haven't hit anything yet. Uh, but you can see that they're well within range of that. And so the battery is needed for two parts. It's needed for the launch, but it's also needed to guide the missile in the air. And so we've seen these weapons be used in Syria um, where they didn't have quite the engineering. Uh, they didn't have the time um, to, 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 to retrofit these. Um, and we saw them be able to launch with makeshift batteries, but not track. But what we're seeing here is weapons that are able to track. Um, so I just wanted to bring that to everybody so that people knew that there was other groups operating um, to the layers of this resistance. We've mostly been um, following the Kassam Brigades because the Kassam Brigades operate effectively as a national army at this point. Um, and so following their operations is, is uh, akin to following the resistance operations. But all of these smaller groups uh, are operating themselves. And maybe we'll go to the last one here tomorrow. I just wanted to bring this to people because this is the Houthis, uh, Ansar Allah, the so-called Houthis, Ansar Allah and the Yemeni armed forces in Yemen yesterday launching a surface-to-air missile towards uh, an American drone, an MQ-9 Reaper drone, which is like a, you know, like a $35 million dollar uh, uh, the flagship of of the of the global uh, drone uh, um, products. It's the top of the line drone, and you can see it being hit there um, by what uh, the Yemeni armed forces said was an indigenous uh, surface to air missile and falling out of the sky. Um, and we saw the Pentagon confirm that this was a U.S. drone uh, knocked out of the sky, uh, thirty million dollar drone knocked out of the sky by. Um, by Yemeni resistance, which has continued. And the Yemeni resistance said yesterday when the U.S. vetoed the Security Council or vetoed the U.N. resolution um, that, uh, that that veto meant that the Red Sea veto would continue. And this is parts of the, um, this is parts of the Reaper that the uh, Yemenis pulled out of the, uh, pulled out of the sea, the Red Sea off Hudeda. Um, so I just wanted to bring that, uh, that last video in um, to show you that um, the resistance is continuing uh, in Yemen. Uh, we don't see um, what it looks like when they fire um, the drones like yesterday. Uh, Ansar Allah fired a dozen drones at U.S. warships, uh, had to fire them out of the air because they were on their way to hit the U.S. warships. Um, and so we don't really get videos of that. So I just wanted to bring... Uh, that uh, answer a law action uh, so people could see that these uh, American drones are uh, susceptible to this kind of weapon. And of course, the Americans responded by uh, randomly bombing uh, what they believe are surface to air missile installations um, in Yemen. So the resistance continues on Israel's southern front in the Red Sea. Uh, oh, they're American drones. This is the second Ansar Allah drone that has been downed. They downed one in November. Um, and they managed to catch the video of it, which for information operations is pretty incredible to get that uh, footage and to show us this footage. Um, 
and and I waited. I mean, Ali, we, we talked about this video and, and I waited for confirmation because you can't see what's on um, the videos and we're, we, we vet these videos as best as we can to make sure um, that we're showing, um, um, that we're showing authentic operations and that we're not, um, we're not just showing these videos because uh, the resistance released them. Um, but uh, yeah, just as a last point there, that's the, that's the end of the video showing the parts uh, of the drone, which um, the Pentagon presumably because people saw this um, had to admit that their, their Reaper was downed. And the, uh, John, if, if I can just say uh, that, that those Reaper drones are weapons of terror that uh, U.S. warlords have been using to terrorize people across the region, particularly in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, across the region, uh, in Africa, in the Horn of Africa, across uh, the world, really, for decades. So the ability of the resistance to shoot down these terror weapons is, is quite an extraordinary development because the... Uh, Ansarullah states, of course, we don't have a way to independently verify this, that this was a locally manufactured uh, anti-aircraft missile. And if that's the case, that is extraordinary because producing a Yassin is uh, remarkable enough. But when you're firing a, a Yassin... Um, at a tank that is either stationary or moving relatively slowly, that's one thing. But to fire uh, an anti-aircraft missile at a target that is very distant and moving very fast is certainly, a, a, a in my view, a game-changing military development. Yeah, it really is. But that, but that's the thing. When we, when, when in the West, when we call them the Houthis, um, it, it gives this impression that it's just this small group of people named after the leader uh, of the group. But the the Yemeni armed forces joined um, the Houthi movement, um, and so the Ansar Allah is a national army because the national army of Yemen joined this fight. Um, and so they have the resources of a national army and we've seen them use those resources. That's why the Red Sea shipping, um, the Americans are saying we haven't faced anything like this since World War II when our actual uh, warships are under attack, not, not tangentially, but actually under attack. Um, hasn't happened since World War II. And they, um, the Ansar Allah movement and the Yemeni armed forces have access to anti-ship missiles, uh, surface-to-air missiles, long-range missiles. We can ask the Saudis all about that. Um, they know all about uh, the missile capabilities uh, of the Yemenis. Um, and, and, and so that's yeah. something that we're and, seeing. And, and, when, and when I, just sorry to interrupt, when, when I say that it's been used as a weapon of terror, I'm not being hyperbolic here because... I'm talking about all the attacks on wedding parties. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, murder of an American citizen, a 16-year-old boy, Abdurrahman al-Awlaqi, who was uh, targeted and killed by the Obama administration in Yemen with a drone. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We're talking about war crimes around the world. And this 
shoot down comes in the context of the United States sending forces to the region to protect Israel as it exterminates Palestinians. So I, I just want to provide that context to, to my comment. Yeah, they're armed. They're armed drones. I think that that's an important thing to say to people if they're not aware of that. That the Reaper is an armed drone. It's not simply surveillance. It's a, a hunter-killer drone um, that they use. Yeah, I mean, you said it. You said it as well as it could be said that uh, Yemenis were the first people to experience drone attacks. Um, they were the people who experienced what an actual blockade. Um, does to a civilian population when they were starved for um, five years under a blockade. Um, and they're um, turning that knowledge, that experience um, around and saying, we refuse to be allow the Palestinians to be blockaded. We refuse to do nothing like the world is doing uh, about this genocide. Um, and, and, and so I think that they should be saluted for that. And, and it's... Um, yeah, I think it's unfortunate that there's not um, a, a, another way of redressing the slow starvation uh, of Palestinians that we're watching. Um, it, it's just, it's just appalling. I, I, I... Yeah, I just want to back up the point that you made, John, about um, Yemen and the so-called Houthis, because this this is a really important point that you made that it just by by how the, the mainstream media in the West calling them the Iran-backed Houthis, it gives a really misleading impression and this is not even a value judgment right of whether you you know people support or don't support what um the yemeni armed forces are doing in in their um armed blockade of the of the of israeli shipping in the red sea this is nothing to do with that it's just a factual matter of the that this is this is a government you know yes there is you know there there is another government based in the south um, but the the government in based in the capital Sanaa has the the armed forces, like you said, the armed forces defected to the Ansar Ala movement, and uh, you know now runs territory in which there's eighty percent of the population of Yemen. So by the mainstream media just saying, "Oh, it's the Houthis," it gives a really misleading impression as this this is just sort of some armed rebel group that you know has a scrap of territory this is the de facto government for most people in yemen for most of the, the vast majority of the population in yemen whether people in the west like that or not that's just the factual matter and ju just to show again because the th there is also uh an effort to diminish the significance of of these uh things that we're seeing i just put in the chat tamara if you're able to put this story up on screen that uh, Egypt just announced that uh, its um, fees that it earns for ships passing through the Suez Canal have declined by uh, half uh, because of the uh, humanitarian intervention of Yemen to try to stop the uh, genocide in Gaza. So this is a uh, an unintended, uh, let's say, or unexpected consequence of U.S., British, and European support for the genocide, that this is a significant impact on uh, global trade and shipping. And, um, you know, the European Union, well, first of all, let's say the Americans and the British already sent their aircraft carriers and their ships to the region in an attempt to stop this, and it had no impact. The 
the Yemenis are continuing. And now the EU it has announced that they're sending uh, whatever boats they have, whatever ships they have. I don't think the European Union navies amount to very much. And let's see what luck they have. But the point here is that they are rushing, uh, sending their navies in order to protect, uh, I don't know, shipping of uh, goods, uh, consumer goods uh, from uh, China to Europe. Uh, but they have done nothing to break the uh, 16, 17-year Israeli naval blockade of Gaza, or even longer. Uh, they, they don't mind a blockade that uh, starves civilians and cuts them off from the rest of planet Earth, but, uh, you know, stop a, stop a shipping container. If only Palestinian children in Gaza were shipping containers, the European Union would be much more upset. They might send their navies to, uh, to intervene. So, again, it's, it, this is, uh, it's no longer a world where the United States and the Europeans can simply impose their will anymore. Even a country like Yemen, which has been subjected to uh, bombardment, blockade, and uh, true savagery for uh, a decade, is able now to fight back, just as Palestinians in Gaza are, are uh, still fighting almost five months after the U.S.-backed Israeli army with all the weapons in the world, all the most sophisticated and powerful weapons, went at them with everything they have. So what I'm saying is that the it's no longer a foregone conclusion what the outcome of engagements with a superpower will be. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, and I mean, this is the, the 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 Yemeni armed forces didn't operate uh, in this way previously. This is a is, uh, a result of the outcome uh, of the domestic situation um, in Yemen. So, um, but but if this was 15 years ago and they did have that capability, maybe they would have uh, started this um, blockade. Um, trying to end the blockade uh, before it was begun in Gaza that has just become completely normalized. And all the things that we talk about in Gaza, the dismantling um, of all the civilian infrastructure, this has been going on since, uh, you know, at least 2005. The hospitals, um, you know, if Dr. Tayer was talking to us five years ago, he would be talking about the impact of the blockade on the hospitals. So this dismantling has come on uh, after uh, the brutality of the blockade on Gaza that's been going on for half a generation now. Indeed. Um, thank you, John and Tamara, for uh, all the production behind that. Um, and before we wrap, I know we have some comments and also uh, we want to take a look at the front page of the guide. Yeah, loads of comments. Yeah. Um, hi, Katie. Hi, um, Katie. <laughs> Katie Weiss from uh, Hastings PSC. Yeah. Um, thank you. Very, very familiar and grateful for all the work that uh, uh, Katie and the folks uh, in Hastings and East Sussex do. They are yeah. always out for Palestine, and we greatly appreciate it. 
Yeah. Um, lots of thank yous as always to the whole team. Um, Max Gurman says Nora's news roundups are absolutely crucial and cannot be overstated. Um, Holly Horn says this broadcast keeps me sane. Thank you, EI. Um, appreciation for Craig Mohaiba, our guest earlier in the stream. Thank you. Um, uh, Tanwar Akram says thank you for bringing on Mr. Craig, Craig Mohaiba, an outstanding human rights activist who acted honorably. Kudos to him. I hope that we'll be able to stop the genocide. Thank you, Tanwar. Um, we had, a, I think really every week we get the flags and sometimes uh, Expo marker emojis um, in memory of our dear friend, um, Rifat Alaria. Um, so thank you to everyone for that. Um, I guess, uh, I guess I have to be immodest and put the comments thanking myself <laughs> thank, thank you for you, that Asa. thanks Asa. can confirm you did a great job <laughs> 10 out of 10 uh, good buddy and and rest in peace to john pilger this um this commenter says honor an honor to be um mentioned in the same sentence as john the late the late great john pilger thank you to the whole team um, and of course, loads of appreciation for John and Tamara. Um, and one commenter gave you well, that a... comment there who said that you, you can't see Tamara, Tamara is behind the scenes. But just a reminder, what we ha she has been on the live stream before, oh, yeah. but a reminder yeah. that Tamara is doing fantastic interviews for the electronic intifada podcast which you can find on the youtube channel so if you want to see what tamara looks like but more important to hear what <laughs> tamara has to say with some of our incredible guests uh then then uh, check out some of the other videos on the youtube channel yes definitely yeah yeah and um one commentator gave um commander john a uh, promotion so thank you, General John. Um, I think Ali wants to take us through some recent well, publications. Yeah, I just want to, to remind everyone and just to say we're very grateful to everyone who comes back week after week, but we're also conscious that there are new people uh, finding us all the time. And we want you to know that the live stream is a part of what we do. Uh, we are first and foremost a publication and tamara we can show the the website the electronic intifada and every single day we are doing unique powerful independent journalism and analysis uh, about palestine and from palestine that top story there is by our colleague uh, maureen murphy uh, who uh, regularly covers the uh, the diplomatic and legal developments. And so this story is about the uh, diplomatic uh, shenanigans in New York yesterday that led to uh, the third uh, outrageous and shameful veto uh, by the United States. And um, so uh, Maureen's analysis is, is great to read and often a very sharp 
and uh, clear roundup. But if we go back to the front page, Tamara, you can see just the variety of stories. Let's look at those features. You can see the top, the first feature there, Stop This Genocide, is by our um, colleague Noura Bouchamela, who is in Gaza. And it's a really heartfelt piece. It's a short, sharp piece, but really powerful. And just to, to remind us all that our friends are still uh, in Gaza and they're still writing. And um, the, uh, th there's a, another fantastic piece by Omar Zaza uh, on the uh, Israeli propaganda campaign. Uh, and uh, Omar is here in the United States but it's an, ex it's an excellent analysis. Let's just go back and have a look again at the front uh, and just go down and you can see then we've got um, uh, the piece by uh, Sahar Qishta uh, and Abu Bakr Abed and Ruwaida Amer, uh, and they are all in Gaza. And I think the rest, uh, if we go down, the rest, uh, uh, Hassan Abu Sitta uh, is also in Gaza. Siwar is from Gaza the really important piece on Israel's war and re reproductive rights. She's in Canada, but she's from Gaza and knows the healthcare system very well. So you can see that what you get from the electronic intifada is reporting from the ground in Gaza. And we would love to have some of our writers from Gaza on the live stream, but the communications are so difficult, uh, it's so hard. So uh, this is their way of speaking to the world. And I just want to make sure that people know that and that we're reading and sharing these fantastic articles. And uh, just remember that um, the Electronic Intifada, we, we come to you every way that we can. We're on social media, we're on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. And we're on email, and email is incredibly important because it's the one thing that they haven't figured out how to censor yet. Let's not give them any ideas. So when you <laughs> click on that Get Updates button, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we won't share your email address with anyone. You can always unsubscribe anytime you want to with, with, with one click, but we hope you'll like it. And you also get notified. You, you'll get one email a day with links to all our articles and headlines. You'll also get notifications uh, when we're having a live stream. And uh, just a reminder that we are an independent outlet uh, and all this work that you see, the live stream, the articles, the work that all our colleagues do uh, behind the scenes, our editors, the work that our writers in Gaza do and the rest of Palestine around the world is all paid for by uh, people like uh, me and you and all of us here. So uh, if you if you can, don't hesitate to make a donation. There's a button there, donate now. And also there are links uh, in the description below this live screen stream uh, where you can also make a donation if you want to. We don't make a big deal of that all the time, but it's just a reminder that that's how we can cover these things, that CNN, the BBC, you heard from Asa about the BBC uh, and what they're up to, uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they're not going to cover the stuff we're talking about here. They're not going to give you uh, the kind of analysis that uh, um, we, we just got from John. So um, if you can, give a gift. If you can't, that's okay. 
share the work, read it, let the world know about it, like and subscribe, and uh, and all that good stuff. And um, thanks again to all of you and to all our colleagues. Thanks so much, Ali. Um, and yeah, go to our YouTube, subscribe to get notified uh, for our next live stream or the next uh, podcast episode, standalone episode that we've been producing. Uh, and Nora, what are a couple of the recent uh, podcast episodes we've had? We had a really good one with Dr. Mads Gilbert. Yep. Tamara and I interviewed Dr. Mads Gilbert last week, so that's up on there. Um, uh, yeah, again, the the interview that I did with um, uh, with a, a member of the United Nations Agency for Sexual and Reproductive Health, Leila Baker. Um, we have a bunch of other ones. Um, I'm like on the spot. I've completely yeah. lost my train. Well, of it's all there on the YouTube channel. <laughs> it's so, all there. So, yeah, and we're having there. a new one uh, very shortly with a, a very special guest who joined Tamara. Um, so hopefully in the next day or so, that'll be up as well. Oh, so, can, yes. can I give a sneak preview about next week's live stream? Yes. Yeah. We Next week, we are going to have a special guest. We're going to have Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, uh, but a really interesting and thoughtful commentator on everything from the Israel lobby to geopolitics and the war in Ukraine and uh we're delighted that uh, uh, Professor John Mearsheimer has uh, agreed to, has confirmed that he'll come on next week. So we'll yeah. send out more information about that and uh, uh, that will be a very good show. Yeah. So yeah, uh, keep, uh, keep those notifications turned on. Uh, thanks, like, and subscribe, do all the things. Thank you so much to Tamara. Again, John, Asa, Ali, everyone at EI. Thanks and see you next time. Thank yes. you.